Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas here, the thriller in Manila, Chand. That means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and the thriller in Manila, Chand. How you doing, Thrilla? You doing all right? Uh, I'm, I'm wishing for a little more sleep. Yeah, I can understand that. I haven't been to bed um, last night yet, so I totally feel you on that. I even stopped by Starbucks this morning. I was like, all right, this is that four-shot espresso day. Oh, my goodness, yeah. four? That's what I typically get. So, you know, the large one or the, what do they call it, Vente? I, I refuse the same Vente. Really? You are, you're one of those people? I refuse. <laughs> it is a large. Large, right. Uh, miss, miss, this is not a large. This is a medium. This is a medium. But yeah, you know, the large I one comes with like that. two shots of espresso. So it's like, give me two extra. But wow. it's fine. I've, I function pretty well without sleep under normal circumstances. I can, I can too, but well, I just. A few days, anyway. But I just don't, I don't feel like bright and chipper. See, and I'm the opposite. If I fall, like, if I try to get to sleep, let's say, like, 4 o'clock and have to get up at, let's say, 5, I'm going to feel miserable. If I just stay up for the rest of the night, by the time oh, within I a few see. hours, you're up, you're at them, your day is going. As long as you don't stop moving, you're good. I'm I'm going to say that changed for me. Uh-huh. A lot of things changed for me postpartum. After you had the baby. The baby changed These glasses, things. My vision, third third trimester, the final... The final stretch. Yeah. My vision changed, and they were like, oh, this happens. Lots of women, you know, you got lots, you got more weight on you. You have, you know, more blood in your system. It causes pressure in the eye, Uh da, da, da. It'll come back after a few weeks after you have the baby. All right. It's been three and a half years. Where is my vision? (laughs) And and the sleep. The sleep is just not the same. Really? So all of this stuff basically changed. Like, oh, yeah. I know my mom, she said things changed for her in regards to responsibilities. So, like, going oh, out to parties, not being able to drink, that stuff. Like, it was like, yeah, that stuff changed for me immediately. But, wow, that's yeah. screwed up. That, this was, like, instant. Yeah. It literally, one day I was, drove to work. Everything was morning, great, no issue. Fine, no glasses, fine. By late after, that day, same day, I got in my car to drive back home, and I was like, I can't see, that's, I can't see that street sign. But that's weird. And I thought, okay, I, I must be tired. Uh-huh. Woke up the next morning, still blurry. And I thought, what is happening with my vision? Oh my God, I'm going blind. And that's what it was. Basically having the kid altered, the, yes. I guess the fluid dynamics or the blood dynamics something. Or, or something. Something, but it, for me, it was the vision. That is amazing. And, and it altered the way, I mean, I think a lot of moms can tell you, it altered the way I sleep and the way I can handle not having sleep. Uh-huh. And I, obviously, it's your body responding to knowing that you have this new little creature you have to take care of. Yeah. But it's been three and a half years of that. And I don't know how women with older kids and, and then by the time they get to high school, you don't sleep because they're out at a party or something. Yeah. Like Scotty, you don't sleep. So you don't sleep for 18 years? Is that, is that what this is? You don't sleep for 18 years? Why doesn't anyone tell you? Moms are supposed to be able to do that. Super women, I guess. Yeah, moms are supposed to, yeah, you're supposed to be able to handle that. Handle that. Uh, nobody warns you. 
No, it's just a baby. Right, they're like, there's oh. no, um, you know, what is it called? Book of, of rule set for the kid. And this is how no. you raise this instruction manual. No, you're just a mom. No, no, they, you know, they try to tell you, you're this amazing vessel of life. You're a miracle. <laughs> it's fantastic and beautiful. Yeah, 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 that's fine. What's the reality? Yeah. And the reality is, you're not going to sleep for 18 years. Yeah. I've assumed kids are stress, expensive, yes. work. Yes. The hand's always greasy. Yes, yes, and stuff. yes. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. But it's, if you enjoy sleep. This isn't it. This job ain't for you. This ain't it. This ain't it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get to headlines. That's All funny. Right. Let's get to headlines here. Let's start. Domestically, three people have been killed as a result of a shooting at a hotel in Biloxi, Mississippi, after a man opened fire on Wednesday morning. The shooter reportedly identified as 32-year-old Jeremy Alexander Reynolds shot three people dead at a Broadway Inn Express after engaging in an altercation over money with the hotel keeper. That's according to the investigators so far. Now, following the incident, Reynolds then reportedly fled the scene for nearby Gulfport, where he then stole a car, attacked another man near Rio Grande Street. And after police arrived, Reynolds barricaded himself at a local grocery store and was found dead after they used tear gas to get inside the building. So, terrible story all the way around. Then the U.S. left more than $7 billion in weaponry in Afghanistan when American forces left that South Asian nation in the summer of last year. You may recall that story. The Pentagon has made a full report on that. According to the congressionally mandated report, as seen on CNN, the U.S. delivered a total of $18.6 billion in military equipment to the Afghan National Defense and Security Forces between 2005 and 2021. Now, of that sum, the equipment alone was worth $7.12 billion. That's the stuff that remained in Afghanistan following the completion of the U.S. withdrawal from the country on the 30th of August last year, adding the Department of Defense has no plans to return to Afghanistan to neither retrieve nor destroy all that hardware. So, the gift to the Taliban. And international news, Russian President Vladimir Putin has warned outside forces against interfering in the Ukrainian conflict, promising, quote, a lightning speed response to such actions with the use of Moscow's most advanced weaponry. And the world order created after World War II and the Cold War isn't really working out anymore. So the West needs, quote, a global NATO to pursue geopolitics. That's according to UK Foreign Secretary Liz Truss in a major foreign policy speech on Wednesday. Truss also urged the US-led bloc to send more, quote, heavy weapons and tanks and airplanes to Ukraine and said China would face the same treatment as Russia if it doesn't play by the rules. Good luck with that. Yeah, she sounds lovely. Uh, 
Then Australia's Home Affairs Minister has accused China of attempting to interfere in an election set for next month. That's according to a recent security deal uh, with a nearby Pacific nation suggesting nefarious motives. In comments to a Brisbane radio station Wednesday, Karen Andrews warned that Australians ought to be, quote, taking notice of and paying some attention to China's pact with the Solomon Islands that we've been talking about here on this show for the past week. Then in tech news, Facebook engineers had no comprehensive knowledge about where or how their users' data could be accessed and had trouble understanding how to control it in line with regional rules. That is according to Vice's motherboard media. According to some leaked internal documents, that motherboard actually obtained for their article, Facebook's team built systems with open borders. Maybe that's something Jamal can weigh in on. Systems with open borders. Hmm. I'm not sure what that one is. Unless it meant... Yeah, I'm not sure what that one means. Yeah, so not necessarily open source. This is systems with open borders. I've not heard that term before. Yeah, and I don't know what that means. Open culture? Is that a tech term you know? No. Open culture. Yeah, this is this is coming from the Facebook people, apparently, that that's how they built their system. I don't know what that means. Um, Unless it meant borders didn't exist for it. Like where it could be, let's say, Moscow or China or U.S. Uh, like, or right, right. Maybe that's what they meant by it. Like, like how McDonald's all... operates, right? Like their, yeah. their food in America is different than their food in the U.K. and different than McDonald's in oh, China. Oh, interesting. I take it as just... That's what I mean. That's how I'm taking it. I'm not, yeah, I'm not quite person. sure what that one is, though. Yeah. Yeah, that's that a very is. weird... But it's weird to hear that Facebook engineers don't really know about their own system. Apparently as much as you and I know. (laughs) (laughs) Then Earth and science. Time travel could actually be be possible in real life. That's according to physicist Barack Shoshani of Canada's Brock University. However, there is a small twist to this. First off, in order to create a time machine, you would need a lot of exotic matter. That is matter of negative energy. That's interesting. Or mass. Mm. All matter on Earth has positive energy and even though quantum mechanics suggest that exotic matter in theory can be created, it would be too small in quantity and for too short periods of time. Right. Secondly, according to Shoshani, time travel could escape the pages of science fiction but only when parallel timelines are involved. This is due to the time paradox or consistency paradox. These paradoxes point to the impossibility of time travel. They don't know that. Right. They're assuming that. Right. So it contradicts. Right. Like, if I go back in time, I kill my grandfather. How am I born if it's the exact same timeline? But if it's multiple timelines, then it doesn't become an issue. Because at that point, you just, whatever you go in, whoever you're killing, that's not technically your grandfather. You may look like your grandfather. You may sound like your grandfather. You may drink the same coffee as your grandfather. Different timeline. But that on that timeline. Exactly. Right. So your own timeline parallel. is pristine. Right. Um, from the standpoint of the negative energy thing, that one is always interesting. It's difficult to get your head around. Like yeah. when you're thinking of like negative mass, it's like, okay, well, what is negative mass? I mean, I know what something is a pound. What does it mean to be a negative pound? And then you have this other thing where the universe has this weird effect of compensating for that stuff. So let's say if you're near a black hole, you would have what's called virtual particles. 
they just kind of pop out of it, out of nothingness. Just something out of nothing. Mm. Because of the way a black hole is, sometimes those particles get grabbed into the black hole itself, allowing one of the particles to escape. It gets very weird, but it's basically something popping into existence out of nothingness. Nothing. Um, but there's compensation for that that has to take place. It, it just, it's just very weird stuff. It's hard to get your head around. Yeah. Especially at 7 in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Professor Shoshani argues that this means time travel can be possible if our universe allows multiple histories to somehow coexist. That is, yeah, wrap your head around that at 7 a.m. And in business news, two foreign nonprofit entities with close ties to the Biden administration officials are set to receive a combined total of $790 million from the president's fiscal year 2023 budget. That's according to the Washington Examiner. Apparent conflict of interest and questionable financial schemes deserve further scrutiny. That's according to some Wall Street analysts. The last thing an administration should do is send such huge sums of foreign nonprofit organizations with whom officials may have personal ties. That's Charles Ortel, a Wall Street analyst. Now, this day in history, 1947, Thor Heyerdahl begins his legendary journey on Contiki. This day in 1969, Charles de Gaulle resigns as president of France. In 1994, former CIA officer Aldrich Ames admits he forwarded U.S. secrets to the Soviet Union. And in 2001, Dennis Tito becomes the first space tourist in history. Then in 2004, the first Abu Ghraib torture pictures are published. That's going to do it for your headlines. All righty. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan, back in a moment with the Soapbox segment. We're going to have a great show for you today, so definitely stay tuned. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Manila and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. That is 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. So I wanted to get into some of the items that are taking place, let's say around the war, and especially around this issue of oil, or let's say gas. For one, you have basically the events that are continuing to take place in Ukraine, regardless of what they're telling you in the U.S. media, Russia has continued to make their advance. Of course, the land bridge to Moropol or to the Crimea um, with the taking of Moropol, that, of course, has been accomplished. And you have this other interesting situation dealing with weapons that are being shipped into Ukraine, continuing to be shipped into Ukraine, billions of weapons. And this is in spite NATO nations and even the United States are reporting that many of the weapon systems they've been shipping, A, they don't know where those systems are going, and B, on top of that, running out. So there's that part. On top of that, 
there's other questions that are associated with this weapon shipments. One, how long does it take you to train somebody on these new weapon systems, especially if you're sitting different systems or more complicated systems, et cetera. And considering that you have multiple nations that are sending these, you basically have a hodgepodge of different weapon systems going into Ukraine. Two, how long does it take to train people on these various weapon systems and are these appropriate for the conditions to which they are uh, being dropped into? And considering that Ukraine seems to be losing this particular conflict, are they having a significant effect? Now, getting to the significant effect part, one of the responses to this, because again, there are consequences to things that you do, especially from the standpoint of the West, we're one degree of separation away from this kind of war with Russia. At the very least, I think everybody can own up to the fact it's a proxy war. You basically had the defense, the secretary of defense, Lloyd Austin, saying our job in this is to basically weaken and degrade Russia. So there's that. The U.S. secretary of defense basically saying we're trying to go after Russia, despite supposedly this being mostly about Ukraine. This comes across more and more every day as a proxy war. On top of that, Russia, in response, has basically started to attack train stations or, let's say, transportation infrastructure, something that they were not doing before. Again, you can look at Western sources. If they're being honest, they would say that the original premise of this was to smash the Ukrainian military, not necessarily to destroy various infrastructure. It wasn't to sack cities and everything else. They were chest thumping when they pulled back from Kiev. But again, on this channel, I continuously made the point that the objective wasn't necessarily to sack the city. The goal was to create a feint to pull troops away from the Donbass region, which was the key and the main objective. It was the main objective when all of this started. It is the main objective now. And despite them showing you Zelensky on a green screen in Kiev, we've been telling you here that this entire thing and the majority of this fight has been taking place in the east with the primary and the main Ukrainian military. So now that we've decided to ship that much more weapons, well, now this is having an effect on issues of infrastructure. And of course, if you are basically destroying the trains or civilian infrastructure in order to get those equipment from point A to point B, then what does it mean for that equipment that is being dropped into Ukraine from getting into the Donbass region? It means most likely it's not going to get there at all. But domestic consumption, meaning, hey, looks at what everything that we're doing. Yes, that works from that standpoint. But from practical realities, is it really having an effect? And of course, there is the get butt naked move that basically took place yesterday with Poland and Bulgaria. And I'm reading reports, Finland deciding not to accept the pay us in rubles. Now, to go back in time for a bit, the U.S. And NATO had this great idea, European nations, we are going to have an economic war against Russia. We're going to crush the Russian economy and we're going to get Russia so beat up and hurt economically that the people are going to rise up and get rid of Vladimir Putin. That decidedly did not happen. And not only did that not happen, Putin's approval rating went up when the pressure on the various political leaders in the West got that much more acute, especially around this issue of inflation and an effect that inflation is having on the various constituent communities with the very beginning of this conflict going up 10% in Europe and in the U.S. And that is just an overall number. That's not even getting into the specific details with some of those things for like gas prices going up like 50%. So there's that part. More to the point, though, if you're going to say we're going to steal your currency reserves, we are going to make it where we can use our dollars and euros as weapons 
then how can you get mad when Russia decides to take an action that is in their best interest? Meaning, if you're going to steal all of the billions of dollars that are basically in your um, um, various countries, okay, fair enough, you can do that, I suppose. It's theft, yes, but you can do that. You can't get upset when Russia turns around and says, okay, well, fair enough. You're not going to get gas for free which is basically what you wanted. If you're saying that we can't necessarily use your currency and we're still giving you gas, then you're basically giving us air for this actual product. That is not going to be something any rational actor does. And for whatever reason, the brain trust was shocked, shocked, I tell you, that Russia and Moscow made that particular choice to do that. Even though I said it almost a week up until the point where Russia did this, that it is the most rational thing in the world. If you are basically saying we're going to use every lever, we're going to throw the kitchen sink, except for gas. We need gas. Gas is important to us, so we're not going to touch gas. But everything else on the table, then what is the one item that is most likely going to be used as a device in order to push back on your economic war? Of course, it's going to end up being gas. And so, Putin, pay us some rubles. Rubles. Your currency no longer has value for us. Rubles. They have value. That's what we're going to accept. And of course, there's this immediate reaction. Oh, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. You heard me saying they are going to bend the knee. They will accept that deal because they have no other choice. If gas could have been something that was on the marquee for them to use to go after Russia in the very first place, it would have been one of the very first items that they would have used. They didn't use it because they couldn't get away from it. You had the situation where German industry saying we will collapse if we Mess with gas on this. And more important to the point, think of the expenses that basically take place as the price of gas skyrockets. Your economic activity comes to somewhat of a halt if you have to pay exorbitant prices for gas. It has a feedback effect going all throughout your various economies, which is what Europe is learning right now as we speak, which is one of the reasons why they were trying to get Nord Stream 2 in creation in the first place, in spite of all of the economic pressure that was coming from the United States. Okay, so fair enough. The other European countries that are not Hungary, that are not Poland, and again, I think I was reading reports in Finland, are going to come around to this. Yet certain German industry and companies that have basically started buying their gas. Now, the process to make this work was basically go to Gazprom Bank, open up an account, pay in your currency. That currency gets converted into the rubles. You get your gas. Very straightforward. The EU comes out and saying, hey, this is not a violation of sanctions. And of course, I would say that is somewhat of a motivated reasoning question. And by the way, it is not necessarily undermining sanctions in the, in the strictest sense of the word. This is somewhat of a business deal in a business contract where you change the rule set around this and Russia conform to the rule set that you basically created or at the very least modified or altered their own positioning based on your alteration of the rules of engagement. So, of course, we expect a rational response from Europe after this. And that rational response was, of course, hysteria, utter and complete hysteria. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen made a statement basically saying this amounted to economic blackmail. Or I'm sorry, energy blackmail, energy blackmail. A, <laughs> this is a radically poor understanding of definitions because this is not blackmail in the strictest sense of the word. Blackmail has to do with I have various information that I can use on you if you don't do X or Y. Even by their own whacked out standards, this is not blackmail. Get your definitions right. 
on the second front. You changed the rules. You did this. All of you did this. Understand, not only did you provoke this conflict, not only did you expand NATO, not only did you not fulfill the Minsk Accords, not only did you knock over the government of Ukraine, the democratically elected government of Ukraine elected by the East and the West for a coup government that was basically Russophobic, so you can use that Ukrainian right-wing neo-Nazi-powered government as a weapon against the throat of Russia. And even with all of that taking place, the main statement, say you're not going to be part of NATO, and you wouldn't even come to an agreement on that, despite the fact that everybody behind the scenes understood it to be true. So not only did you provoke this conflict, something that all of you knew was going to take place for decades, all of you knew it was a red line, all of you continue to push that particular idea. Fair enough. Not only did you provoke it, then turn around and say, okay, now we're going to have an economic war. Now you're claiming that after trying to destroy the Russian economy, that Putin's rational, infinitely rational response to basically your assault on his country, that that is somehow blackmail. So what is it called when you try to destroy the economy of another country? What is that called after provoking a conflict? I wouldn't call it blackmail, maybe extortion. That seems like a better definition for it as opposed to blackmail. But hysteria is not a good reaction. And fact of the matter is, any country worth their salt that had the capability of making alterations in order to accommodate an economic war and a legitimate, a real war, A, that was provoked, but B, an economic war. On top of that, of course, they're going to take certain actions in order to ameliorate those conditions to which you and your fellow countrymen and belligerents, create it. Calm down. It is not economic blackmail. First, definition is wrong. And the second point, this is something that all of you, this entire context, and fact of the matter is the attacks on the various constituent demographics in the various countries and in this country was entirely provoked and pushed by you. If you needed to find somebody who's at fault, look in the mirror. In the words of Jen Psaki, who's going for her um, television contract. Got to pay for your values. Got to pay for your values. Um, Manila. Wait, are we paying for that in rubles? They will be paying for that in rubles, yes. Okay, yes. my values are they, they? will be paying for their values in rubles, yes. Okay. That's no exactly. AMX. No AMX. Okay. No American Express. Okay. No Visa, no MasterCard. Oh. Rubles. Oh, okay. Rubles is the thing that has just, value. Just checking. I just yeah. want to know how I pay for my values. <laughs> right, right. Yes, they will be paying for their values in rubles. Okay. What's your take on this? I mean, like, I think you, you're the one who told me this. You were like, is that really blackmail? Is that even the definition? Yeah, is that even the definition? It was like, no, that is not the definition of blackmail. Like, isn't that the premise of, do you remember that the, the movie that made Demi more famous was uh, yes, Indecent Proposal? Indecent Proposal. Isn't that, wasn't that based on blackmail? Or was no, because that was basically her using her job. That was more sexual harassment. I'm oh. a female. I'm your oh. boss. You need to give me, you need to show me some leg oh, if you oh, want to oh. keep this job. Different like, type of workplace no-no. Yes, yes. Just like blackmail. You don't want to blackmail your coworkers or colleagues. Correct, yeah. Right. Yeah, this but was that, different. That ain't it. Blackmail, that, I mean, this, it's Extortion just Extortion is the best what they're trying to it. frame it in their head as? No, that's just not it either. I'm going to go back and, and, and I'm, I'm going to refer to yesterday. Yep. I'm going to stick to my guns on that. It is just as simple as a vendor saying, I no longer accept American Express. Oh, I no longer accept Visa. I, I'm now cash only. Yes. And 
my cash is rubles. Thousand percent agree with you. It's I'm like saying that, just that simple. In their heads, what they're trying to come up with an assessment of is right. you're trying to get around the sanctions. Yeah, because we yeah. don't find them to be legitimate. And it's like, wait, wait, you want us to pay in rubles? Yes, because your value no longer is currency based on, I mean, your currency <laughs> no longer is value right. based on actions that you guys have taken. This wasn't something we wanted. We feel, Russia continued to fill their contracts. Right. Just to be clear. Well, they also did the same thing uh, with with Germany, and they, cont- they forged forward with the Nord Stream 2 even yes. after Olaf Schultz came into office. Um, and they fulfilled their end. They met all their targets, their deadlines, and what have you. Um, and Olaf Schultz, meanwhile, it was his new administration that refused to certify right. the completed work. So right. that was that final straw because he Olaf Schultz does not have enough uh, chutzpah yes. as Angela Merkel. Gravitas, um, you know, concern for Germany. You, there's a list of those things. And it's just a lot. That he doesn't of, yeah. have, yeah. But but again, it it showed time and time again, and you outlined several of them, uh, of pointing out all the times that in the in the past, literally the past three four years, where the Russian Federation has stood up and stuck to their end of their bargain. Yes, they delivered on promises. They hit dates. They hit targets, and everybody else didn't. The U.S. The UK, the the EU as a whole, let's just say. And obviously NATO. Yes. That's that's the crux of the problem, right? No one else held up their end of the bargain. So when they are painted into a corner, now they're like, hey, your euros, your pounds, your whatever, your American Express, that ain't good here. Only rubles. What else do you want them to do? Especially if you're trying to act like it's okay to give. I paid you. Don't say I didn't pay. I paid you. I put it in the escrow account. The escrow account of basically NATO mob bosses that are holding the money hostage. Okay, how helpful is that? In a Like, this is a business transaction. It's that simple. Doesn't matter if I like you, I called your mom this or that. This is a business transaction. I don't care if you, you know, call me the bad Asian word, right? Yeah. Like, don't care. It's contract. If I owned a shop and you come in here and you make fun of my Asianness, don't care. You got money? You going to buy that? Get my money. Give me money. Bye-bye. Yeah, Thank you. Bye. Money has that actually has value. Gr- and it has to be something that I can use. Right. Um, so, yeah. Right. Here, it's the greenback. Your greenback is green. I don't care if... What color you are? What you, I don't I don't yeah. care. Over there it's rubles. Right. And Over that's there the it's thing. rubles. So that's it's the same idea. The issue. So same idea. Let's do this. Let's go. We have our guests. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas Manila Chan. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And we are covering the Ukraine war, and we're going to continue to cover that for this segment. Yesterday, it came out right here. Putin was speaking to lawmakers in Moscow on Wednesday. If someone decides to intervene in the ongoing events from the outside and create unacceptable strategic threats to us, they should know that our response to these oncoming blows will be swift, lightning fast. 
Quote, we have all the tools to do this, tools that no one except us can brag about, but we're not going to brag. We're going to use them if need of such a need arise. And of course, this has to do with multiple things. A, the bellicosity that is coming from Western nations. You have an increase in the amount of weapon shipments, or at the very least stated increase in the money and the shipments that are basically going to Ukraine to kill Russians. There's that part. But there's also push into the Ukrainian government, to the, the various Ukrainian military, to make inroads and attacks in Russia proper and to basically use some of these weapon systems that they're getting in order to do so. Putin's point is, do that at your own risk. To have a conversation about this, we're joined with our guest, Nid. Oh, I'll get it. I'll get it. Nebosha. Nebosha Malich. Thank you. Nebosha Neb Malich. He is a Serbian-American journalist, blogger, and translator who wrote a regular column for anti-war from 2000 to 2015 and is now a senior writer at RT. Neb, let's go with that. How you doing, Neb? You doing okay this morning? Hi, buddy. I miss you. Hello, Manila. Hi, Jamal. Uh, good to be with you. Absolutely. It's great for us to have you. And thank you, Manila, for nailing the name for me. I was looking at the name. I was like, oh, this is treacherous. This I've is had treacherous. many years of practice, Neb, right? <laughs> uh, right, right, right. We we worked together for, for quite a long, uh, quite a while. Uh, and uh, I, I do I do miss working with you, but uh, I guess uh, uh, RT America was one of the casualties of yes. the of the early wave of uh, anti-Russian sanctions. So here we are. Yeah, the tears are real on oh, that one. Uh, absolutely. Um, they're a sister company, right? So feel some kind of way about that. Um, but now, I wanted to get into this. Look, I understand where Putin is coming from with this. Basically, you have all of these belligerent nations. Not only did they provoke this conflict in the first place, something that they knew was real out for decades. On top of that, they decided... Now, here's our opportunity. We're going to finally get to do what we've been chomping at the bit to do for all of these years. Ukraine will be the provocation that we use as a justification to do it. Let's have an economic war. And on top of that, in this war with Ukraine and Russia, let's send them all of the weapons necessary to the last dead Ukrainian. And so that was their policy. And they've upped the amount of weapons. They've upped the number or where these or the type of weapon systems that these guys are sending in. But more importantly to that, to push in the push Ukraine to be like, hey, make more attacks in Russia. Hey, go further into what you're doing and use these weapon systems that we're sending you to do that. Well, they're basically having a proxy war with Russia, and they're saying this aloud. Lloyd Austin, Defense Secretary for the United States, basically said as much. Biden saying, we need to get rid of Putin. Somebody get rid of this guy, which I honestly and I still believe is an articulation of policy. What did they think was going to happen at the point where they acknowledged they were having a proxy war with Russia? Well, the you have to understand that um, the key to understanding that approach is that they don't believe that Russia or anybody else aside from them has any agency. Um, I think um, the most clearly articulated Western policy uh, was uh, came from the British foreign minister, the haplessly geographically challenged Liz Truss, who actually said la uh, last night that, you know, Ukraine's war is our war and um, that, you know, we must send them tanks and airplanes and produce everything and send them everything and so they can win. And, you know, after their glorious victory uh, and expulsion of Russian troops out of the entire country, the um, League of Democracies or what, whatever she called it will rebuild Ukraine better than ever. And here I am, you know, reading this speech going, what drugs is she on? <laughs> um, 
because uh, my God, this is something tenfold po- more powerful than hopium and copium s- combined. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this is uh, there's this delusion in in the collective West, these these forty odd countries, and and this is not you know, I, I'm calling them collective West out of a lack of a better term because it's basically uh, the U.S. and Canada, the rest of NATO and Northern Europe, and then we're talking like Australia, New Zealand, South Korea, and Japan, and that's basically it. Um, that consider themselves, quote, the international community, in quote, the world, and they're manifestly not. And they're going around threatening everybody else, and they're, they're, they're basically saying, you know, we've excommunicated Russia and surrounded it and isolated it, nine of which are these things are true. And they're approaching this war. I swear to God, they're approaching this war like um, like a video game. You know, we're just going to create, you know, generate more units, and we're going to ship them off to the front, and they're, they're going to fight, and then they're going to win. And that's not how war works. I mean, I I've been in a war myself back in Bosnia, you know, thirty years ago now. Uh, I I um, y- you need you can't just send material to the front lines. You need to train people on it. You need to train people how to function as units, um, uh, how to operate. The, the, the Ukrainian military had been given some training by NATO for the past eight years. NATO has been directly involved. I mean, let's face it. Everybody remembers the infamous Victoria Newland recording in which she's putting together the Ukrainian government and saying, he can be here, he can be here. He can't be anywhere near power. We need him here, you know. And, and, and my she's favorite part these was people. The, Neb, the favorite best part: f the EU. Right, right, and that's and that's literally what the what the U.S. is doing and the U.K. are doing right now, unironically. Right, because of I, I was just listening to the segment uh, you guys were were talking about before the the whole rubles payments. I mean, the the continentals need Russian oil and gas. The UK and the US do not. And so here they are demanding that, you know, oh, we must not, you know, we must completely embargo all of this stuff. And the Germans are going, wait a second, you do that, our entire industry stops. Well, oh, but, you know, here's the British who left the EU demonstratively over the past couple of years going, well, screw you, we don't care. <laughs> and the Germans are saying, okay, but, but, but we need our industry. And, then they, you know, meet up and say, fine, we're just going to send tanks to Ukraine. And Putin here is being way too subtle, in my opinion, and saying, you know, look, we just launched this, this, you know, nuclear missile that nobody can possibly counter. We have the weapons to retaliate against you. We will not hesitate to use them if we're endangered. For the love of everything, holy, please cease and desist and see reason. But again, he's being way too subtle about it. If he came out and said, you know, I will knife you to death in a dark alley, paraphrasing, um, or, you know, use one of his more colorful expressions from growing up on the streets of St. Petersburg, that might theoretically get the message across better, I think. I don't know. I mean, because obviously nobody's listening. No, they haven't. I mean... I mean, I put it this way, um, considering that many of the German industries have basically started to buy um, Russian gas. At the very least, I think they know they're serious now um, at this point. Um, but to your point, yeah, it doesn't seem 
it is very weird that we're in this kind of predicament now where this war is basically taking place. All of these people have basically died. And we know now that behind the scenes, they were telling him, you're not going to be a part of NATO. Meaning the entire, the main premise that would have prevented this from taking place at the very least and the way it took place um, a couple of months ago was basically the premise that already had agreed upon. I guess my point is, it's to back up your point that none of them would come to any kind of rational good sense on this particular issue if rational good sense meant to avoid a lot of people dying needlessly. Oh, absolutely. And I think, uh, and that's that's the most, that's the saddest part of all this, that uh, they, the West, the collective West, literally went into proxy war to the last Ukrainian. They absolutely do not care about saving Ukrainian lives. They have demonstrated this repeatedly. Uh, for the sake of what they call a sacrosanct principle of open doors that is literally nowhere in the NATO charter that was articulated in this memo a few years back, but it's one of those, okay, well, there was a memo, there can be another memo. It, it's not something that's set in stone. It's it's not something that's in the NATO charter. It, it's, it's not really something that... Uh, that fits the NATO charter as written, not that they care anymore. And they never really had any intentions of admitting them to begin with because, um, NATO, I mean, NATO membership is reserved for countries that can actually do something for the alliance, whether strategically or, or not. And, and, you know, Ukraine at this point can only contribute deaths uh, its own deaths. I mean, I, yes, I know there's some delusional politicians in the West who believe that Ukraine can can somehow win against Russia. This is this is not possible, and it's not going to happen ever. But um, again, it's it's the whole thing about you know poor dying Ukrainians that that were being sold every day in the corporate media is just so cynical because these people don't care. They they're literally sacrificing Ukrainian lives, and 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 then they pop up on on you know their their own networks and say oh, oh but we're not going to send any of our troops in there we're just going to ship them some really obsolete military technology and and because that's technically not us being at war and it's like guys what is this what is this you know dnd rules lawyering crap if if i try to run this uh, uh, run this stuff uh, you know in a weekly role-playing session, I'd get kicked out for for you know being a pest. Um, I mean, it's 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 ridiculous. Now, Neb, let me let me throw this one out at you. Another lovely lady uh, coming out of Europe, Ursula von der Leyen, the EU Commission president. Mm. Y- yes. <laughs> uh, so she is. She has trotted off to India to try to. I don't know. I mean, I guess the Biden administration, it didn't work trying to woo Narendra Modi away from being neutral and sort of leaning towards the the Russian side. Now, this is a quote from Ursula von der Leyen. She says, For the European Union, the partnership with this region is one of our most important relationships for the coming decade, And strengthening this partnership is a priority for the European Union. Our strategic cooperation should take place at the nexus of trade, trusted technology, and security, notably in respect of challenges posed by rival governance models. And then she tweeted, 
Okay, that, that was what she told the press officially. And then on Twitter, she wrote, As vibrant democracies, India and the European Union share common values and interests, but our values are not shared by everyone. So let's address jointly the rising challenges to our open and free societies. And she's saying that the EU interests are more aligned with India than India would have in common with Russia. Now, I'm not, I I don't know, you know, the world geography perfectly, but I feel like Russia might be a little bit closer, I don't know, on the same continent as India, which is in Asia. I mean, Am I wrong? No, no, of course not. Uh, but I mean, yeah, I, I, I don't want to say Ursula is about as geographically challenged as her colleague in Britain. But uh, here's here's the problem. Here's here's the problem with this. Uh, first of all, let's face it. Th- this is the woman who ran the German defense ministry. And as a result, <clears throat> the Bundeswehr is about as depleted and useless as it has ever been. Uh, we have Olaf Scholz, the, the new chancellor, going, yeah, so our military is so busted and broke that we can't afford to ship any more ammunition to Ukraine. So we're just going to invest a whole bunch of money in replenishing our stockpiles. Um, but yeah, sorry, Ukrainians, uh, the, the, the store is closed. We don't have anything more to spare. Now, this is, this is after two months of fighting. Two months. Um, two whole months. Yeah. That was fast. Uh, and he's like, yeah, we have a NATO obligation to have enough uh, weapons and ammunition to resist for 12 days. Okay, thank you for revealing doctrine, Olaf. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but so so he's basically saying that Germany has about enough war material left for less than two weeks of fighting if, if it comes to it. Because of the states that Ursula left the Bundeswehr in. And this is the woman who failed upwards, just like everybody does in the EU. And for her to suggest that the EU is a democracy like India is an incredible insult to the Indians. She might as well have just eaten a cheeseburger in front of Narendra Modi. Oh, no. (laughs) I mean, this is such a slap in the face that, you know, just, just a suggestion is an insult I mean, here are the Indians who, who, you know, spent several centuries under European colonial rule by the same British who are now lobbying for some sort of alliance of democracies exactly. without an ounce of shame. And and here she is lecturing them on this stuff and, and using this abstract, you know, dictionary of, of values BS. I don't want to. I don't know. I don't know. I can't pinpoint. I I know I'm not Indian, but I'm at least I'm Asian. My my relatives come from the same continent. I cannot really point to a commonality between, you know, Asian interests and European values and vice versa. Like I they're very different cultures. Manila, I was born in Europe. I mean, if that gives me some commonality with Ursula, that's because her ancestors tried to conquer us at least the mine at least <laughs> twice and got kicked in the teeth uh, for for trying to do so. I mean, I share no values with her 
at, at this point because she, the, the the woman is is clearly just you know reciting nonsense that somebody else wrote for her. I have yeah, zero I'm... respect for Ursula. I have less than zero respect for the European Union. It is an absolute sham. I'm trying desperately to connect those dots. When I read that, I thought, but, but wait, wait, Europe. Okay, Russia. I think they just say stuff. But, right. I'm just yeah. like, wait. I yeah. don't. I don't understand these. Com- does not compute. Does not compute. Right. And and that's the thing. And that's the thing. You're thinking rationally, and and you you're trying to parse this rationally. And this is not rational. This is this is magical thinking. This is these are buzzwords intended to conjure reality into being. Because, as I noted the other day, you know, if if. Chomsky and Herman were to write Manufacturing Consent, their 1980s famous book these days, they would have to call it Conjuring Consent because manufacturing has been, has been outsourced. Manuf- industry no longer exists. It's, it's all make-believe and narrative management now. It's even weirder on some level because of the way tech companies and for that matter, media basically back up governments in regards to the way they're coming out with. Meaning the governments don't have to worry about media coming back saying, hey, the government is lying here. We have no idea. Meaning what Manila just said. How is what she's saying any association with reality at all? They don't do that. I mean, if anything, NBC News came out, said the quiet part aloud that they've been lying for the last several months um, in regards to the stories they've been putting out. So, yeah. Right. Yes, that famous that famous story by none other than CIA handmaiden Ken Delaney. And when I read this, I was like, what? What are you doing, Ken? No, 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 no. I mean, internally, I was saying, yes, thank you. Same here. But... You know, if if I were if 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 I were Avril Haines or you know the, the William Burns at the CIA, I'd be going, "What the hell are you doing, Ken?" <laughs> You're not supposed to say that, Ken. Um, one of the things. So, uh, UN President, um, Secretary General. I'm sorry, not President. UN Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez went to the Kremlin on Tuesday. Now, my understanding is that's his first visit since all of this basically had begun. Some people said that's mistaken in and of itself, taking this long, but whatever. So in the meeting between the two, of course, he's there to read Putin the riot act. That's the only reason that he's going for that. But Putin says something to him that I wanted to get your comment on. He says, quote, I remember very well the decision of the International Court of Justice, which states that in exercising the right of self-determination, a territory of any state is not obliged to apply for permission to declare its sovereignty to the central authorities of the country. Now, what he's talking about here, and I'll just keep going. He says so many, he's talking about Kosovo. He says so many states in the world, including opponents in the West, have done this with respects to Kosovo. Kosovo is recognized by a lot of states. It is, in fact, by a lot of Western states. It is recognized as an independent state. We did the same with respect to the republics of Donbass, who'd made the point to him. And he has a point, right? I mean, I've heard Putin make this point before, bringing about Kosovo and, and the actors of the West. Um, in regards to Kosovo. But I love the fact that he's bringing this up in response to this, basically pointing out the naked hypocrisy of it all. What are your thoughts? Right. And 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 the, the best part actually came a second later when Guterres said, but the UN doesn't recognize Kosovo. And, and Putin gets this smile on it. Because I actually watched this segment. Uh, uh, I, I, I literally watched the meeting live as it happened. And um, uh, you know, it, I, I was kind of waiting for that moment because Putin flashes a little smile and says, yes, but, you know, that still doesn't mean that a lot of Western states have. In other words, thank you for making my point for me, Mr. Secretary General, because Russia's been making that point for years, ever since ever since the NATO occupation in 99, when, you know, the UN passed this resolution that said the final status of Kosovo will be decided by the Security Council in line with, you know, preserving the sovereignty of Serbia. 
And the U.S. and its allies went, nah, we don't care. And they backed this ethnic Albanian separatist state. And so you have this hapless Serbian government. I mean, I remember this very well because I was you know, living through this and writing about it at the time. And you had this hapless Serbian government that was put in place by a U.S. coup going, well, we'll ask the U.N. about it. And there was this whole big vote in the General Assembly, which, you know, these days the U.S. boasts about uh, having 140 votes in, in favor of condemning Russia. Well, back in the day, um, when Serbia asked, you know, uh, do you approve of us raising this before the International Court of Justice? Only like four countries voted against it. And it was the U.S., Albania and two Pacific Island nations. So, I mean, that was an overwhelming vote right there. Well, what happens at that point is that the U.S. basically leans on the court and says, you know, you really need to rule in my favor somehow here. And what, it, what they ended up coming up with uh, is, is what one of the dissenting judges from Africa called a judicial sleight of hand, in which they said, okay, well, it, it may have been technically illegal for this particular institution, which was the, um, like the temporary parliament set up, a provisional government set up by the UN, to declare independence. But... We're going to pretend that they were not that, but they, they were a hypothetical, self-organized, autonomous expression of the local people. And so they said, you know, the law applies to certain institutions, but if you pretend you are not that institution, then you're fine. I mean, the, the, the whole reasoning behind that verdict was so ridiculous. It was so blatantly obviously pandering to the U.S. and its allies, because this was like a couple of years, this was 2010, so this was almost three years after they created this fait accompli with the Kosovian Independence Declaration, that it couldn't have been more obvious to the rest of the world that it was, you know, this was an effort to make a blatantly illegal action seem like it had backing in the law. And at the time, both analysts like me and politicians like Putin said, this is going to have consequences. And the American administration said, now nah, it'll be fine. This is just a, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a special case. We can do what we want. Shut up. Everything will be fine. Well, this is, 20, you know, this is 2010. 40 years later, there's a coup in Ukraine. Um, and you have Crimea seceding, and all of a sudden, Barack Obama is saying, oh, that's not okay. Uh, you know, Kosovo at least had a referendum, which he made up because that never happened. And, you know, that's that's not at all comparable. And Putin is again saying, look, you know, you're the people who broke international law with Kosovo, and now you're telling us that we can't follow international law with Crimea? And again, he's making the same point again with Donbass. He's saying, look, you know, you set your own verdict in your own court, that it's the UN court, you know, you're acting on this basis and you're saying that there's this international order that has rules and such. You said this, you created this principle and now you're saying we can't apply it. Well, if we can't, if we can't apply it, it's not a principle, is it? You know, what are you, his, his point, right. And that's the thing he's, again, he's being too subtle. I'm, I'm, I know this is not a popular opinion. I know a lot of, you know, a lot of people think Putin is this and that and the other, but 
I think he's being too subtle because he's saying, look, you know, you created this precedent. We're applying this precedent. We're not recognizing Kosovo because we recognize the UN resolution that recognizes the sovereignty of Serbia. But you created this precedent in 2010 and we're applying it to Donbass. And here you are going, no, 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 you can't do that. Well, we're a sovereign country. We follow the UN rules. You don't. What are we what are we supposed to do here? Just just like you were discussing earlier with rubles. It's like there is no there is no law, there is no principle, there is no uh, there are no rules aside from do what we tell you. And we, in this case, is the collective West, and that's not really a way to run a neighborhood, let alone the world. Deb, real quickly, uh, we got a question from one of the rumblers, Ek Onkar, that's the handle, wants to know your opinion on Finland and Sweden wanting to join NATO. I think it's stupid. I think they've benefited from neutrality throughout the 20th century. Uh, I, I think they've had... Um, an incredible status as as neutral countries and and mediators between Russia and the West, and they're th- going to throw it all away for what? For an alliance that doesn't function? It, it's dumb. Yeah, well put. Straightforward to the point. Um, hey, Neb, thank you, my man. I really appreciate this. Great, great spot. Um, it was great meeting you for the first time. Neb, I miss you. I hope you come back on with us. Uh, I'll say your goodbyes here. RT senior writer Naboisha Malich. Thank you, my friend. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Manila Chan, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, I'm the fixin' of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. That means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Manila Chan. Yeah, thank you for saying Boja. It took because as I look at it, I, I feel Neboisha. like Neboisha. I the, feel a little yeah, bit of anxiety J. as I look at the I name, know. thinking like, okay, of we're gonna go for it. Symbols yeah, and, yeah, and and then the and I hate C. to butcher somebody's name that's coming on the show. But yeah, and 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 remember, I've been around uh, Eastern European coworkers for almost a decade. Yes. So I, I've learned how to pronounce all the names, and like Novak Djokovic, Djokovic, the C at the end uh-huh. is a ch. Yeah. Because they're Serbian. Mm-hmm. Um, I would I would even say John Malkovich, the actor. Yeah. Except I think they anglicized probably when his family, I don't know for, for a fact that he is he is Serbian, but yeah. I would venture to say he is of, of Serbian descent. Malkovich. Yeah, the name. Is, is, yeah, spelled is differently um, by I've seen in, in Serbian names. But I think it got anglicized probably when his whoever, grandparents, let's say, yeah. came to the U.S. and they made a, a C-H in there because they realized Americans will never say the C <laughs> as ch. So they put the H there to be like ch, like China. Yeah. Chicken. <laughs> Malkovich. That was a way of 
Americanizing. Yeah, you know, so, for the, so that for the way America yeah. stopped butchering their name. I'm sure the Malkovich family was like, all right, all right, let's just add the H at the end. Let's just make it easier let's for just, everybody. Yeah, let's just put the H there. But yeah, he's great. We got to definitely have to get him back. I really enjoyed oh, that conversation. He knows his stuff. Um, but let's get into headlines. In the news. In national news, three people have been killed as a result of a shooting at the Hotel Biloxi, Mississippi, after a man opened fire on Wednesday morning. The shooter reportedly identified himself as 32-year-old Jeremy Slender Reynolds, shot dead three people at Broadway Inn Express after engaging in an altercation over money with the hotel keeper, according to investigators. Following the incident, Reynolds then reportedly fled the scene for a nearby Gulfport, where he stole a car, attacked another man near Rio Grande Street. After the police arrived, Reynolds barricaded himself at a local grocery store and was found dead after they used tear gas to get inside the building. That is a grisly story. Jeez. Man, what is in people's headspace when they're doing stuff like this? The U.S. left more than $7 billion in weaponry behind in Afghanistan when American forces left the South Asian nation in the summer of last year. A Pentagon report has revealed. According to the congressional, congressionally mandated report seen by CNN, the United States delivered a total of $18.6 billion in military equipment to Afghan National Defense Security Forces. Um, to security forces from 2005 to August 21. Of that sum, equipment worth $7.12 billion remain in Afghanistan following the completion of the U.S. withdrawal from the country on August 30th, 2021. The document reads, adding that the Department of Defense has no plans to return to Afghanistan to, quote, retrieve or destroy, unquote, its military hardware. Yeah, we left a ton of equipment um, in Afghanistan, and there were pictures and images of Afghanistan, of um, the Taliban basically playing with some of the tanks, or the, uh, not the tanks, I'm sorry, some of the weapon systems that were basically left behind. There were even talked about systems that used for identification, if I'm not mistaken. Um, even those systems were left behind with concerns that either the Pakistan Secret Service would help the Taliban to identify various people who might have been working with the U.S. government while they were on the ground over the last 20 years. Either way, ton of equipment left behind in Afghanistan. Russian President Vladimir Putin has warned outside forces against interfering in the Ukrainian conflict, promising a, quote, lightning speed, unquote, response to such actions with the use of Moscow's most advanced weaponry. Um, I read that report earlier, and of course our guests made the point of saying Putin did not put that start enough. Either way, I think the point was made very, very clear. Do not screw with us and do not get further into this conflict. The world order created after the Second World War and Cold War isn't working anymore, so the West needed a, quote, global NATO to pursue geopolitical geopolitics anew. UK Foreign Secretary Liz Truss argued in a major foreign policy speech on Wednesday. Truss also urged the United States-led bloc to send more, quote, heavy weapons and tanks, unquote, and airplanes to Ukraine as that China would face the same treatment as Russia if it did not play by the rules. And of course, those rules are created on the fly, depending upon what is in the West's interests. That is astonishing. So you are already dealing with inflation that is going through the roof. You're dealing with oil prices that are going through the roof. You have a situation where Germany says, if we don't get gas, our economy is going to collapse. You have prices in the U.S. going through the roof. I've gone through the inflation numbers item by item by item so you can see how widely expansive the numbers and the prices have basically gone up. And that's just with Russia. Now, they're basically turning an eye to China, wagging their fist at them saying, you're going to get it next, buddy. 
dude, I need, I think you need to look at your constituent democracies, quote unquote, and figure out what is basically happening to those governments and the people in those governments. I get you believe that people need to pay for their values. The problem is that the people on the domestic plant are paying for your values, not theirs. They're paying for yours. You have all of these people who just want to live their life and all things being equal. You and your geopolitical gamesmanship is creating all sorts of hardships for the various people in the various countries. And now, even though this is not going according to plan in regards to Russia, you still have the stones to turn around and wag your fist at China. Good luck with that. Good luck with that. Let's keep going. Australia's Home Affairs Minister has accused China of attempting to interfere in an election set for next month, saying a recent security deal with nearby Pacific nations suggested nefarious moves. In comments to Brisbane radio station on Wednesday, Karen Andrews warned Australians ought to be, quote, taking notice of and paying some attention to, unquote, China's pact with the Solomon Islands announced last week. This level of naked hypocrisy is astonishing, even for the West. Are you insane and serious? Ultimately, you guys have said that Ukraine is an independent nation. Ukraine can do whatever Ukraine wants. If Ukraine wants to get weapons and aim those weapons at Russia, it can do that. If it wants to use this kind of Russophobic um, Nazi-powered regime as a knife to the Russian throat, then Russia can't do anything about that. Ukraine is perfectly comfortable and fine with doing that. And the rest of the world order says it is okay. World order, of course, from the standpoint of the West. The Solomon Islands independent nation makes the decision to have a security pact with China because it is clearly in their own best interests. And of course, everybody flips out. And the rule set that was in place for Ukraine in this one specific, specific sense is not okay for China and the Solomon Islands, despite the fact that this is not even a security agreement in the sense of we're putting a base on the Solomon Islands. Yes, it's a security pact. No, they're not putting a base on the island. I guess my point is the level of hypocrisy associated with this is utterly astonishing and emancipatory, even from the standards of the West. Talk about a context lens. Yes, greatly needed in these stories. In tech news, Facebook engineers had no comprehensive knowledge about where and how their users' data could be assessed and had trouble understanding how to control it in line with the regional rules, Vice Motherboard's media outlet has reported. According to a leaked internal document that Motherboard obtained, Facebook's team built, quote, systems with an open borders, unquote, and open culture. Now that Meta faces a tsunami of privacy regulations, it has trouble keeping track of all of those personal data or all of the personal data at its disposal. Look, I know for myself as a software engineer, oftentimes you try to get as much data as you can possibly get because you never know what you want to use that data for. And even though when you're building systems, you start thinking you have a certain idea in mind, but all things been equal as issues come up, you try to keep and maintain data, especially for something like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or some of these other services where later on you're going to think, how do we monetize it? And it's the information that oftentimes this is the thing that gets used to monetize it. So even if I don't know your salary, even if I don't know certain elements about you individually, there's certain information that I can get based on your view habits, based on the things you look at, based on the things you're interested in, that I can basically use to come up with a profile to, uh, to create a model for you as a customer in order to give to other people. My point is that data is vitally important from their standpoint, and that is the way that they look at as this kind of monetary or monetizing effect. So yeah, they may not necessarily know each and every one of those, let's say, threads of um, where that data is being accumulated. 
Um, but yeah, that's pretty wild. But that's why. I mean, it, it's, it's, their, it's the way they monetize their site, basically. Whether they are monetizing it currently or whether they're going to do it later, information is the way to do it. In Earth and Science News, time travel could actually be possible in real life. Physicist Barack Shushani of Canadian's Brock University has suggested in an article for The Conversation. I'm always shocked that people are shocked by stuff like that. It's like you are stuck in a reality frame that you are basically plopped into. You have no idea what this is. You have no idea what reality is in and of itself. And I got to be honest, the fact that it exists at all is utterly astonishing. And yet, when all of these kind of weird things come up, people are like, I'm shocked that that exists. Why are you shocked that that exists? The fact that you exist at all is rather shocking. However, there's a small twist. First off, in order to create a time machine, one would need a lot of exotic matter, matter with negative energy. All matter on Earth has positive energy, and even though some quantum mechanics suggest exotic matter can, in theory, be created, it would be in too small quantities and for too short periods of time, or too short period of time. Secondly, according to Shoshani, time travel could escape the pages of science fiction, but only if parallel timelines are evolved. He doesn't know that. He's just saying that. This is due to the time paradox or consistency paradox. These paradoxes point to the impossibility of time travel. They do not. But if parallel timelines existed, allowing a time traveler to jump across alternate history, leading to alternate present, and there would be no paradox. Shoshani argues that this means that time travel can be possible if the universe allows for multiple histories to somehow coexist. It's astonishing that this guy has all of these ideas for something that has not been proven, has not been tested, and he's basically using the fact that it's a paradox as his justification for why such and such can't exist. Too esoteric for me. Fair enough, fair enough, <laughs> fair enough. It's just like, dude, you don't know that. You're acting like you know that. I mean, for the longest time, they didn't believe that asteroids could hit the planet. What? Yeah. It, it was like, oh, there's no way that those things can hit Earth like that. Well, they were wrong. There's all sorts of stuff science is wrong on. And this is one of those things where science has been in effect for, what, 100 years, 200 years? And they have all of these big proclamations about reality and everything else? Yeah. Dude, if you've never done the experiment, how do you know as a flat fact? And is the paradox in and of itself enough for you to basically say, this cannot exist? Is there such a thing as objective reality? Ooh, that gets more interesting. It gets more interesting. I would say no, but who knows? Right. I, I, I want to say there is, but I don't know 100%. Yeah. I'll leave room for possibly, yeah. right, possibly not. Because the problem is, it's like you can't touch it, even if it was there. Meaning whether it's there or not is secondary to the point of whether you can ever actually get to it. It's like you can get close to it, maybe, um, but all things being equal, that stuff is always out there somewhere. Now, I'm, I enjoy theories, yeah. but... I, I like to entertain them, and I like to think that these are people far, far, far more educated than me. Absolutely. thousand percent, yes. So I at least like to entertain the idea. Imagine that. Yeah. People being of open-mindedness. Mm. I think we're lacking that in society these days. When the UFO topic comes up, when we were trying to get all of these scientists to come onto the show, none of them would do it. Why? Because in their heads, it's like— well, we've stuck by the idea for 80 years that this didn't exist. And Did now it? the government is saying it, it exists. And now they're showing videos. And now Congress is being briefed. And I don't want to come on your show and look like a complete idiot by standing by and not having an answer for all of this voluminous amounts of evidence that you're going to basically present me with. Well, it's, that, it's that part. Well, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's also, I mean, you can compare that. Because they would have gotten had if they right. came on the show. I mean, if... <laughs> For example, more recently with COVID, mm -hmm. there are 
a number of doctors, some of whom I know personally, who are not into all these different vaccines, but they would never say that publicly because they would just get glommed all over. They don't want to deal with the flat. Right, they just don't want to deal with the fallout. Same thing with the Ukrainian thing. Um, They had some of the people, I believe it was Newsweek or one of those, or Fortune magazine, where they were going and they were talking about the campaign itself. And they were talking about, they was like, look, Russia could decimate these guys, but they chose not to do that. But the guy wouldn't say that in the open. He was anonymous. And it was like, yeah, he chooses to be anonymous as he's saying this. Yeah, because he doesn't want to get the flack of pushing back against what's being coming up, what's being reported as almost a mainstay in Western media. And the fact that Western media is basically owned up to the fact that they were lying makes it that much more clear um, that their reporting on this stuff has not been accurate. Let's keep going. One, uh, two more stories. Two foreign nonprofit entities with close ties to the Biden administration officials are set to receive a combined $790 million from the presidential fiscal year of 2023 budget, according to Washington Examiner. Apparent conflict of interest and questionable financial schemes deserve further scrutiny, insists Wall Street analyst Charles Ortel. Quote, the last thing an administration should do is send such huge sums of money, I'm sorry, huge sums of foreign nonprofit organization with whom officials have personal ties, he adds. Does he not know Biden's history and Hunter Biden's entire history? This day in history, in 1947, Thor Herkodal begins his legendary journey on Con Tiki. In 1969, Charles de Gaulle resigns as president of France. In 1994, former CIA officer Aldrich Ames admits he forwarded U.S. secrets to the Soviet Union. These were... Uh, but then, I mean, 1996, that is, that is weird. I mean, I don't know... 94. What, 94. I don't know what year he did that stuff. Maybe it was just found out in yeah. 1994, but the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991. Yeah, that's why I was looking at the number. So, I was like, okay, that looks weird. I don't know. In 2001, Dennis Tito becomes the first space tourist in history. In 2004, the first Abu Ghraib torture pictures come out, and they are, of course, utterly disturbing, to put it mildly. Those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. One last thing. One last thing. Cats out of the bag. Here's what I've been up. This is Nina Djakovic. And this person, I'm trying to figure out who the person is, but right here. It says, this is Politico.com. DHS is standing up a new disinformation governance board. Disinformation governance board to coordinate countering misinformation related to homeland security focused specifically on irregular migration in Russia. Nina Djakovic will head the board as executive director. She previously was a disinformation fellow at Wilson Center, advised the Mm -hmm. Ukrainian foreign minister as part of the Fulbright Public Policy Fellowship and oversaw Russian and Belarus programs at the National Democratic Institute. Isn't that great? They're basically saying, we're setting up a disinformation governance board so we can put out disinformation. Right, I was just going to say, are they trying to, quote, fight disinformation or Creative. Oh, you know the answer to that. You already know the <laughs> you already know the answer to that. I know. But the NBC that's so News cynical. thing where they basically lied. They've been lying for months. And now they're like, you know what? We need to formalize that lying into some kind of governmental body to, you know. Right, let's make it formal. Yeah, let's make that formal. But they only do that. You know why, right? Elon Musk is taking Twitter. No, I mean I'm saying that they formalize anything and and call it like a, a governing board and make a new, you know, three-letter agency. It's so they can get paid for you know, oh. more. They can get, <laughs> right. So they can get, really, it's so they can get more money. That's it. That's great. Let's do this. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan, 
back in a moment with the one and only Garland Nixon. You're going to love him. We love him here on, uh, on Fault Lines. Um, it's always a pleasure when we can get Garland to come on. So he will be back. You're not going to want to miss this segment. This is going to be great. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Manila and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, you could, I'm sorry. If you're digging what Manila and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. Right before we jump into Garland, we got to share some breaking news. The White House is now proposing using assets seized from Russian oligarchs to compensate Ukraine. So they're stealing from one. Wow, that's amazing. That's Peter amazing. to pay Paul. Wow. So they're stealing from Russia in order to give that stuff to you. That's amazing. That's amazing. So Let's that. do this. Let's bring in Garland. Garland is a broadcast journalist at Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. Garland's work centers on foreign policy and a predominant focus on anti-imperialist movements worldwide. And of course, he's on Critical Hour, 4 to 6 p.m. Monday through Friday. Garland, what's going on, my man? You doing okay this morning? Oh, I am out here sowing doubt because apparently that's the bad thing to do, sowing doubt. Yeah, but have you created your own disinformation board? Yeah, have you gone that far, Garland? And just let me read the story again because this story is amazing. This is utterly amazing. DHS is standing up a new disinformation governance board. Disinformation Governance Board. I guess this goes along with the Ministry of Truth and the NDAA when Obama put that up. But to coordinate countering Countering misinformation related to homeland security focused specifically on irregular migration and Russia. Irregular migration and Russia. Nina Jankowitz will head the board as executive director. She was previously a quote-unquote disinformation fellow at the Wilson Center, advised the Ukrainian Foreign Ministry as part of the Fulbright Public Policy Fellowship, and oversaw Russia and Belarus programs at the National Democratic Institute. Garland, the interesting part to this is they're going to be specific to irregular immigration or irregular migration. I suppose that to be illegal immigration. I don't know what else, what else that is. And Russia. And the person who they've headed this is somebody who is basically advising Ukraine. Are, like, this is... <laughs> and then I was asking Manila, I was like, so let me get this straight. If when, when Secretary of Defense, Austin comes out and says, yeah, 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 Russia is losing this thing, or Blinken says Ukraine is holding their own, is this disinformation board going to come out and say, hey, wait, Russia has been taking those towns, they've been accomplishing their military objectives, Crimea, they created the land bridge, we have no idea what you're saying, or are they just going to second the nonsense that is coming out of government? It's going to be the latter, I suspect. What are your thoughts on this? This is astonishing. It is, and it isn't, I'll tell you why. It is very difficult to convince people to... Um, not to believe their lying ears and eyes. And I think this as a number of other things that's going on now to me um, show an increasing desperation 
They see, you know, they've been using Twitter as a tool of the um, of the national security state and using it particularly lately to uh, silence voices who are uh, putting out information that is obvious and easily um, substantiated. And I think right now there, you know, I, I can't say what Elon Musk is, is going to do, but I can see that there's a, a, a tremendous fear amongst those who are actually sowing disinformation about Ukraine war, among, about U.S. foreign policy. So I see it as desperation. I mean, it's a sign of a of a, of, a, of a mentality of totalitarianism, but it is definitely also a sign that they recognize their, you know, people are starting to ask questions about, you know, goose-stepping, sieg-heiling guys running around being supported by the United States, and, um, and they're getting worried that they can't hold their lives together anymore. Now, Garland, speaking of that, you were admonishing these Stepan Bandera fanboys in Ukraine on Twitter. And then you got in trouble for saying that these guys are bad actors. And so it turns out Twitter, did they temporarily suspend you? Did you just temporarily go to Twitter jail or are you banished into the Twitter sphere for good? Because I've got a bone to pick with Twitter myself. Um, I just wanted to test their algorithms or, or maybe their, their board who decides on, you know, what's hate speech and what's, you know, uh, disinformation, whatever. So I decided to report somebody. I usually don't report. I don't care, right? It's Twitter. It doesn't affect my real life. But this person decided to attack me and a South Asian woman, a friend of mine, and imply that Asian people, not imply, he said it straight out, that Asian people eat cats, dogs, and bats. And when somebody else pushed him on that, he said, because how do I know what she eats? Because she's Chinese, referring to me. Now, I report that to Twitter. And how do you think they ruled, Garland? They ruled in favor of that guy, not the Asian woman being having racial slurs leveled against her. They ruled for that guy, and now they're ruling in favor of Azov. Yeah, I'll read the, um, I, so what I was basically accused of, or I guess um, found guilty of, shall we say, convicted of, was violating their rules of hate, against hateful conduct. You may not provoke, promote violence against threatened, and I guess this had to be, or harass, this must have been it, other people on the basis of, and they give a lot of things like race and sexual orientation, religious affiliation, I don't know, but here's my tweet. And I always do these tweets, I say breaking news, you know, just for fun. Breaking news. In a shock to no one who has ever opened a history book, Germany is providing military equipment to goose-stepping, sieg-heiling freaks who are adorned with swastikas and fighting Russian troops on the Eastern Front. So that was it. And that was, um, I guess, threatening or harassing. Guess, I guess that must have been harassing. And I guess because I called goose-stepping, sieg-heiling Nazis freaks, I guess Twitter wasn't happy about that. But the reality is this. You know, let's not pretend that they are serious and honest arbiters in this game. This is a national security tool. It's not what this is not like um, this is arbitrary application of the rules as opposed to rule of law. And it was who it was you. So you were going to be found wrong. You know, let me tell you a quick story about, uh, I'll make it real quick. When my mother was growing up, you know, back in, you know, uh, uh, um, apartheid America, she said where she lived 
in Baltimore, there was a black neighborhood, there was a Polish neighborhood, and there was some other group because they were all, but they all came together. And if somebody called the cops, when the cops got there, they weren't concerned with what happened. They were concerned with who made the call. And so they had to look at the hierarchy. If it was a black person who called against e any of the other white groups, either though, even though they were immigrants, well, that black person was wrong and they were arrested. If it was the Poles, then if it was the blacks, they, that, that if, they, if they called, if it was a black person they complained against, then the poll was right and, and, and on and on up the hierarchy. That's what we're looking at. This is a hierarchical, depending what, how you fit in on the, um, the, the, the national security narrative is whether you're right, wrong, or, you know, or, or somewhere in between. Right. Because of my my newly granted label of Russian state affiliated media, I guess that outweighs the everything, the, everything of me being a, a minority woman um, and, you know, slandering Chinese people in such a manner because, you know, this is we're still in covid and we're not far off from President Trump, you know, starting kicking up the dust in this Asian hate stuff. But that's okay. Twitter says it's okay for this guy to say that to me. But God forbid, Garland, you how dare you admonish any Nazis? How dare you go after You're those racist. Nazis? <laughs> how dare you hit those Nazis? Um, Garland, I want to hit, uh, so there are two clips. One has to do with Jinsaki. And of course, with Elon Musk getting Twitter, and look, I've made the point before, I say it over again, I'm perfectly fine with Musk getting Twitter by the same token. If we're dependent upon a billionaire to say free speech, we have already lost it. That's assuming we had it in the first place. But in this case, Jen Psaki basically makes a comment on it. They asked her about this. I think this was a couple of days ago. Let's play the clip. Just a quick one on the, the breaking news, Twitter agreeing to let Elon Musk uh, purchase, make this, go through this purchase. Uh, do you have a response to that? And does the White House have any concern that this new agreement might have President Trump back on the platform? Well, I'm not going to comment on a specific transaction. Uh, what I can tell you as a general matter, no matter who owns or runs uh, Twitter, uh, the president has long been concerned about the power of large social media platforms, uh, what they the power they have over our everyday lives has long argued that tech platforms must be held accountable for the harms they cause. Uh, he has been a strong supporter of fundamental reforms to achieve that goal, including reforms to Section 230, enacting antitrust reforms, requiring more transparency, and more. And he's encouraged uh, that uh, there's bipartisan interest in Congress. Uh, in terms of what hypothetical policies uh, might uh, happen, I'm just not going to speak to that at this point okay, in time. The now, now. They need to make adjustments to Section 230. We don't have Twitter in our back pocket in the way that we used to have Twitter in our back pocket where we could basically prevent information from hitting the pages. And to be clear, Russiagate was full of it. It was a complete conspiracy theory that network media ran with for three years. And even going with the Hunter Biden laptop stuff, it was Twitter that decided, hey, we're not going to put out this real legitimate story because it may have an adverse effect to Joe Biden. Like, meaning... All of these guys were willing to do this stuff. There's not going to be a situation where the government, the disinformation board, is going to come on and say, hey, hey, the Hunter Biden story is probably true, and so you shouldn't lock that up. It's not going to be that, which is kind of like the point that I'm getting at is like this notion of disinformation is utter nonsense. It sounds like now, though, now the government wants to get involved in dealing with the issue of Twitter and that Elon Musk is going to have to be it. I guess, call to account, regardless of whether he takes the company private or not. I found this to be astonishing. What are your thoughts on this, Garland? Well, let's start here. You know, Nina Jankovic, she's supposedly going to head the new uh, the, the DHS uh, Disinformation Government Board. 
This is her. Let me give you a quote from her that she said to ABC News in October 2020. We should view it, Hunter Biden's laptop, as a Trump campaign product. So she was involved in trying to censor the Hunter Biden uh, story, um, you know, when 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 it was being, you know, when 51 former intelligence, former, quote, intelligence agencies were saying that it had the earmarks of uh, Russian disinformation. So it's clear what's going on here. They picked her specifically because this thing is set up to um, to address their issues. You know, I mean, I think that's what we got to get at. You know, have you ever seen a time we've seen plenty of lies? Have you ever seen a time when they were so blatant? You know what I mean? It's like scary at times. They just come out and they just like say, okay, um, it's 12 o'clock in the afternoon. I guess that means it's midnight. And then if you say no, they say you're sowing doubt and Russian disinformation. It's just gotten so absurd now, you know? So I I just think they're, um, they're swimming against the tide and we will see greater pushback. But the good thing is this, I think over the last few years, We've gotten some other platforms, you know, they're like, you know, again, Rumble and Rockfish and Odyssey and other platforms have, have been born and people uh, people have gone to Telegram. The problem they have is there are people have discovered other methods to to learn information and to, dis- to pass information and to have discussion. So they're losing control and they're going to try to control the mechanisms with which they have. And, and like I said, even Twitter, they're afraid they'll lose control. Even though he's the richest man in the world, they have a fear that maybe he won't go along with every one of their whims. And that's seemed to be exactly what it is. We have one more clip from Ari Melber, and this is from MSNBC. They are melting down, and it's, it's very wild to watch that. He's a fish in water where he doesn't necessarily see the water because all things been equal, to make your point, like you said, this is their side of things. And so as long as their information is stuff that they don't want coming out, doesn't come out, they're good. They don't have an issue with that in the least. Their concern with Elon Musk taking it is that information that they don't want to come out may actually come out. And their capability of eliminating various stories, various sort, all of that stuff gets undermined the moment that Elon Musk takes it over and decides, hey, maybe I don't want to play ball with you guys. This is what Melbourne is saying. This is currently Twitter today for most people. This is what it is today for most people. Not for him, though. Listen to what he says. Let's play the clip. You own all of Twitter or Facebook or what have you. You don't have to explain yourself. You don't even have to be transparent. You could secretly ban one party's candidate or all of its candidates, all of its nominees. Or you could just secretly turn down the reach of their stuff and turn up the reach of something else. And the rest of us might not even find out about it till after the election. Elon Musk says this is all to help people because he is just a free speech, philosophically clear, open-minded helper. They do that now. Right. They do that now. And it's happening now. It's happening now. When they would get rid of Telesur, when they would get rid of some of the left-wing sites that they they didn't necessarily like. The Hunter Biden story. Yes. They do it now. They shadow ban. The suppression is there. They specifically state with the label that they assigned to me— they specifically state that they will suppress my reach yes. and they will make sure that people don't see my stuff unless you go looking for whatever I tweet. So that algorithm is already there. And then, you know, this I put to the test if they were, you know, truly against anti-hate, yeah. you know, against hate speech. I just wanted to test this out if they would apply the rules equally. Oh, they and they don't do not. Do that. No. I don't know if it's an algorithm or a person, but either way, now the shoes potentially going on the other foot. And they are losing it. They're going crazy. 
Garland, what are your thoughts? Well, and if you think about th- 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 that, that what what they, what you are doing when you gaslight the world is you're spreading disinformation. You're imp- deliberately implying that something isn't going on. Well, we're afraid they may start shadow banning at a time where they're shadow banning, banning, you name it. So that's it's intentional spreading of disinformation. And I guess if realistically, if we're honest with ourselves, this disinformation board, governance board, is exactly what it says it is. They want to govern the disinformation. They want to they want to come out and say, look, we got to get control of the disinformation, which, again, I'm glad it implies that they feel that they don't have control of the disinformation. And we'll make sure that, you know, what they call disinformation, which is which is anything that goes against the, the, the U.S. national security foreign policy and narrative. And I'm not even going to say domestic policy narrative because the government of the United States no longer has any concern whatsoever with domestic policy. Our government has fully decoupled the the political party parties, whatever you want to call it, has fully decoupled from its constituencies. No concern whatsoever on what the American people, the plight of the American people. It is a foreign policy neocon monster. This is what if Americans wanted to ever wondered what it would be like if John Bolton and Dick Cheney were in charge. Now they know. Very good point. I mean, and yeah, it's unfortunate that this has basically taken place. And people might forget Obama under him, the National Defense Authorization Act. They added in that Ministry of Truth thing. And so it's like this seems to be a direction that they were basically going in using tech companies as almost like an intermediary. I suppose the Biden administration doesn't want to have to do this directly because it looks bad. So let's just hurry this out to some other person who is going to. Silicon Valley goons. Yeah, let's just pass it out to them. And they'll make these decisions for us. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's unfortunate, to put it mildly, in a country with the First Amendment that these guys are coming up with something like this. Garland, I wanted to get into also, there's talk about whether or not, and I, I didn't even know that they were still talking about this, but the bill back better. Build back better. So there's talk in the White House that they're concerned that Joe Manchin is not going to be for anything. That, they're, that Joe Manchin is going basically, they're coming into the midterms. They still want to get something accomplished. Like I said, I thought this was dead as a doornail at this point. Um, not so much. They're still trying to talk to Manchin and try to bring him over to their side. Like, come on, Joe. Come on, Joe. Let's help us out. Help us out. Because what they're expecting is a complete catastrophe in the midterms. And their hope is that if they can show, okay, we got something done, even if it's something minor, even if it's a cup of coffee for most people, you know. At the very least, they could show something, whereas now they have nothing to show. And inflation numbers are going through the roof, meaning whatever money that the people got from, let's say, the money that they put out for the PPPs and all the other stuff has basically been eaten up by the foreign policy of this country. You know, I I am extremely cynical when it comes to the two parties. And I I honestly feel like this. And I hope I'm not, you know, uh, not repeating the same thing over and over. It's gotten to the point where I don't think the people who, you know, I don't feel as though Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are the decision makers around in here. I feel as though they're very powerful entities who um, write the checks for both parties who are making the decisions. And I don't think they really care. You know, they never lose. It doesn't matter if the Republicans are in. Are they going to, you know, give less money or more money to the military industrial complex or Wall Wall Street or Big Pharma or Big Agra? No. So since the government has decoupled from its constituency, I don't think they care. And I mean, if you are in the House, 
You have rewarded your donors um, handsomely. If you lose, they're going to reward you handsomely. So at this point, it doesn't really matter. I think I've always felt as though Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema were the the stalking horse. Um, uh, you know, they, they were just the 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 the, the um, uh, uh, you know, a, a pair of people who had been designated to be the opposition before it was all we can't get anything done before yeah, because of the Republican. Right. And and now, since they don't have any Republicans, they got to create some. And there's the Republicans they've got. They've created their two Republicans that can stop them from doing everything. Because in order to do anything with Build Back Better, there'd be two problems they'd have. Number one, to really do anything, they'd have to cut into the Trump tax cuts, which their billionaire donors are not, are not going to allow them to do. And the other thing is they would have to go against neoliberalism. They would have to actually do something to help the working class or – put this thing through bare bones and expose once again that there's really nothing in it. So it doesn't benefit them to to get this thing through. Nothing can get through because 99.999% of their focus is on their neocon mission of world hegemony. They don't have any energy left for the people who actually vote anymore and they don't really care. Oh, we have a report that just came out. So the U.S. economy stumbled in the first three months of 2022 as inflation fears the Omicron coronavirus wave and ongoing wars in Ukraine weighed heavily on business and families. The economy contracted a 1.4 percent annualized rate in the first quarter, the weakest showing since the pandemic recovery began two years ago, according to the Bureau of Economic Analysis released on Thursday. Is this the Putin price hike? Or is this foreign <laughs> policy? I mean, because keep in mind, that's what we're saying, right? That's what they are trying to get across. They're tra- in that's their the, heads. That's the PR scheme. That's the PR scheme. Putin did all of this. I mean, I love the fact that Peter Ducey, um, hit her, was like, so, so wait, you're just going to blame Putin for all this, right? It's like, yeah, just pretty much. Checking. Just yeah. double checking. Just Asking double checking. for a friend. Yeah, <laughs> right. Is, are they going to be able to make this work like that, though? I don't think this is going to work. I don't think this worked for Trump with the China virus right. and the way that he right. was saying. They might have said, OK, yeah, China might have had something to do with it, but you're the president. I think they're going to say the same thing with Joe Biden on this. They're going to look at the inflation. They're going to say, oh, my God, I'm paying 20 percent more for meat. I'm paying 10 percent more for this or 20 percent more for that. And they're going to say, yeah, this falls at the split of the president, whether they can attach it in a geopolitical sense or not, is almost secondary to the point. The buck stops at Biden. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, the Biden administration is, you know, is is non-existent. You know, the blob is in control of everything. The um, so the Biden administration is not. I would argue this in the traditional manner that we evaluate political parties now. The Democratic Party isn't a political party. A political party has to have some attachment to its constituency. It has to at least like kind of understand what its constituency would do. It's got to at least give them a head fake or something every now and then. The only thing they do is they give when when people scream and say, I'm really hurting. They're like, OK, it's Putin's fault. Uh, excuse me, I don't have time. Let me get back over here to what my focus is. This is not really about you anymore. We're not really into you. This is about our focus. So it's not even really a political party anymore. Um, we just have competing factions um, in um, in Washington, D.C., who are, you know, competing. There's a big 
pot of money there. And we have these oligarchical corporate factions competing for that money. And we're on the outside screaming and waving our hands saying, hey, look at us, look at us. And the people on Capitol Hill are like, no, you guys don't have the kind of money that we need to look at you. So the, the, the system is has you know, crashed really, really bad, much more than most people want to admit. I'm curious. Do you think it's a situation where we don't have political parties anymore? And let me answer this. Why? And this can be the last question because I'm pushing it a little bit. But why do you think that's the case? And let me explain what I mean by that. Under normal circumstances, at the very least, in theory, in theory, schoolboy theory of politics, that people will go and vote for somebody who's going to help them get something accomplished. There's information that they get from, let's say, the media or whatever, um, edifice they get the information from. But they're basically making a choice that is of their own personal best interest. And it seems somewhere along the way that got rigged or gamed into, okay, well, they're not voting for what is in their best interest. They're voting to basically stop the bleeding, not necessarily to put a wound on it or put a Band-Aid on it or, for that matter, to heal the injury. And so if you can get people into this kind of weird headspace where it's, well, I don't have an expectation of getting anything. I don't have an expectation that they're going to work in my interest. I do have an expectation that they're going to keep our opponents at bay. Where it becomes that, where it seems like that becomes the modus operandi. So this notion of aspirational politics, or I'm going to get this done, or I'm going to get that done, and we're going to get rid of homelessness. We're going to, these kind of big ideas that a country can kind of organize around in order to accomplish various things on the home front. That seems to be off the table. And we seem to be purely in this thing of vote in order to keep Republicans from getting the Supreme Court. Vote in order to keep the Republicans out of office. Vote to keep the Democrats out of office. This is just, it's, how do we get here? Maybe that's the question. And do you think that's the logic that is taking place currently going forward? Like that's the current modus operandi in regards to the way the population basically votes and nothing gets accomplished until that changes. What are your thoughts? You know, I I think this is basically where the neoliberal um, uh, economic model was headed, that it was inevitable. But but I think one of the things politically that was important was t- 2016. It, regardless of what you say about Bernie Sanders, like or not like uh, him, as a, a political force, as a political entity, he represented something different. And the system was horrified in 2016 that he could beat Hillary, and he probably would have. And at that point, they were smoked out. They were forced out from under their rock, and they had to come out, and they had to reveal that they were anti-democracy. And they had to come out and make it clear, we can't let this guy win no matter what. And, and they used all, you know, they used the media, they used everything they could, intelligence, you name it. And then comes Trump. And he wasn't, regardless of what you think about Trump, he wasn't part of the system. And, and they had to do the same thing. And so I think 2016 was a turning point where the, um, the, the economic system and the national security state felt threatened by outsiders and they were forced to really reveal who they are and what they are and the tactics they use to suppress democracy. And a lot of people woke up and saw the suppression of doc- democracy and they can't go back to sleep. And now that the cat is out, of, is out of the bag, I think they just don't care anymore. And they're just like, oh, well, we had to reveal ourselves. We have to do what we need to do to maintain power. And now what we're looking at is um, competing factions of the ruling class battling over the money. And um, at the same time, they're using the national security state, the media, they're using every tool that they have to suppress um, what happens when a um, the, the inevitable outcome of a collapsing empire, which is internal uprisings, be they physical uprisings or political and emotional uprisings. Wow. Garland, 
Always a pleasure to have you, my man. Always a pleasure. Hey, by the way, do you think Sanders should run again? That was bouncing up well, in the media. In, to what end? You know what I mean? To what end? I mean, so he runs. We already know how this works. They they rob him, and then he comes back, and he helps whoever robbed him, you know, right. helps you win anyway. have seen this movie. Yes. This movie has played out several times, so I agree with you on that. The voice that you guys were listening to is Garland Nixon. He's a Sputnik political analyst and co-host of The Critical Hour, airing Monday through Friday from 6 to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard, right here on Radio Sputnik. You can follow Garland as host of The Critical Hour, of course, and you can also find him on Twitter at Garland Nixon. I think he may be back. Garland also has a YouTube channel that he frequents, so definitely check him out on YouTube. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas Chan, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host Manila Chan coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And we are taking your calls. The number is 202-521-1320. We have Sanchez from Southern California. It never rains in Southern California, and it is Right and early there. Well, um, what's going on, Sanchez? How are you doing this morning? It's actually a late night for me, so I'm going to wish you both a good evening. Oh, my. Is it? Okay. Well, it says Southern California. We just You're assume. working late. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm just wishing you a, a good evening. And you have a good sleep soon. Uh, yes, I do. Uh, I'm, I'm generally considered a vampire around here because I sleep during the day. But, and hey, that's what I do. It happens. I wanted to talk to you specifically. Before I get to the Russian missiles, I wanted to bring up a point with you. Uh, I'm so sorry about what happened to your program in question. I was your number one fan. Oh, thank you. That's what got me kicked off of YouTube. I took a portion of the last clip of Michael Maloof, and I would like to read this because it is extremely pertinent to what everything has been discussed in the past couple of hours here. Uh, Michael Maloof, the last time you had him on the show, he said this, quote, regarding Russia and Russiagate and the impending war because it hadn't started before. Remember before you guys got cut off? And his quote here is, this all stems from a hoax in 2016 of Russian collusion with Trump to win the election. Now, the Democrats own this narrative to the point now they're, going to get, they're prepared to get this country in a real war. And because I took that clip, and I'm a, a longtime activist, I was one of the founding members of Occupy LA and RT uh, back when Oscar was still. Wow. Way back then. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he, he was here all the time. I, I know him. I think he's working in San Diego now. At any rate, they came, they took footage, footage of me, the, the only, the only uh, cameras that were allowed inside. So I posted that up on my YouTube page along with that clip of Michael Malouf. So the same day that RT uh, lost their YouTube channel, I also lost my channel. So wow. Did you? Certain banishment. So they, they're also banning regular people who are just doing clips right yeah i got no warnings they never responded back to me it was i was just posting clips so oh so that that clip got me banned and by the way maloof is right about that Mal- on I mean, some level yeah he's he called, he wrong he called the afghanistan withdrawal um before you know when they announced that, that they were going to do it he called it that the taliban would take over he said six days it happened more in like or he said 10 days and it happened in six. Oh, so you got it wrong 
He was, he was well, way wrong he on was that. Way wrong. When, when, <laughs> when the Biden administration said it wouldn't happen for months and yeah. maybe a year. He said, we're not going to see people hanging off of helicopters. No, no we just saw him on no. a, other airplanes. Maloof yeah. knows his stuff, man. He's, he's you know, been in at the DOD. He was there for a very long time. And Mike is, it. it ugh, I hate that he's almost a fortune teller. Well, your interactions with George Gallup, well, they were wonderful too. But anyway, let me get to this thing. I don't know if you guys were talking about this or not. But uh, in Russia, they just finished over the weekend here uh, uh, testing out what they're calling the SARMAT, mm-hmm. brand new nuclear-tipped uh, missiles, intercontinental, intercontinental ballistic missiles that are capable of reaching not only the EU, the UK, but the US. And they're saying that these uh, missiles, SARMAT, S-A-R-M-A-T, or as the Pentagon is calling them, the Staten II but they're actually called Tarnat, okay? And uh, they should be ready uh, for deployment, uh, according to what they're saying here, um, by the fall. So whatever hanky-panky that the NATO is doing right now in Ukraine or whatever they're trying to do, they better get their acts together because by the time fall comes, I I really don't think Putin's going to be in the mood to to, uh, play around much. I, I think he's getting really serious about things. Yeah, I don't I don't think he's generally a guy you mess around with anyways. So this I mean, they're calling it Satan too. Of course, you already know NATO's been moving eastward. They couldn't go westbound, so they went eastward and they kept playing with him. They kept playing with him. And Putin was so chill with everything and he just was biding his time here. So of course everybody was caught off guard to the point right now that yeah, we're in a serious mess here. Well, they shouldn't have been caught off guard though. I mean, I understand your point. I mean, but it's like you're put in a situation where you have to bide your time because any action that you take is going to have larger geopolitical consequences. And so it's like, okay, they're expanding NATO. What do I do in this moment? Or for that matter, they're taking Ukraine. What do I do in this moment? And eventually you get to the point where you're pushed against the corner where you don't necessarily have a choice but to respond. And so it's like, you know, it's, it, it's a difficult spot to be in. Yeah, but guys, this guys, this is 20 years in the making that yes. NATO has started expanding. I mean, this was starting to happen during the Clinton era, and that that's was right. in the 90s. And then also that's when all the, the big banks and all the, you know, the collusion against the American people began. You know, the Glass-Steagall Act yeah. was reversed under Bill Clinton, and then NATO also started expanding under Bill Clinton. After being told they wouldn't. So, yeah. My man, thank you for this. I Sanchez, appreciate this call. Please call back. I'm a SoCal girl myself, so it's nice to talk to another SoCaler. You're a homegirl. I am. I'm from proudly Whittier, California. Chico Rivera. Hey, hey. <laughs> Pioneer High School grad, what? Yeah, no, I'll talk to you soon. Have a good one, my man. Thank you for the call. And Bye-bye, yeah, again, Maloof is right. I mean, like, if you think about it, my, my contention was always that there's no reason to believe that the energy that was put out with the Russiagate stuff was going to stop on a dime. Meaning the moment that another Democrat gets in office, all of that stuff comes into play because all of that stuff is part of a conspiracy theory that these guys are basically running on as their logic and basis of operation. And so it's like at the point where you have Putin saying, look, they're not going to be a part of NATO. We need to negotiate around security concerns. If these guys weren't so in their head about the Trump-Russia stuff, would they be more inclined to come to some level of an agreement? Even if it was bellicose, even if it was belligerent, still, at the very least, behind the scenes, okay, we don't want a larger conflict. And I think for me and from my standpoint, I don't know the answer to that. I think it's 
Look, I think this is a combination of policy that's been taking place for the last 30 years, that this was expected and wanted regardless. Yeah, I mean, I, I would go back to the Bill Clinton era and this decision to make Russia the enemy was not thought up in 2016. This has been cooked up for about 25 years. And because, guys, this is a bureaucracy. It takes a long time to make things happen. And it's got to be a slow creep, right? It's got mission creep happens, but it happens slowly. That's why it's called a slow creep. Um, But I would say, I would argue that this started under Bill Clinton. And it doesn't matter that the next president was a Republican or the previous one, you know, it doesn't matter. Kept saying policy. It doesn't matter if there's a D or an R in the Oval Office because the deep state policy forever, you know, permanent Washington has already made that decision. And the powers that be that control permanent Washington will make sure come hell or high water, that plan is executed. So it was decided long ago, probably immediately after the Soviet Union fell, they probably decided then that, all right, we got to make this the boogeyman again. Full-spectrum dominance. So we would just, not have another power center arise from the remnants correct. of the Soviet Union. That was correct. basically the, um, and, the policy. And we found out um, just as the, uh, the incursion into Ukraine happened that Vladimir Putin revealed for the first time publicly that when he met with Bill Clinton, uh, I forget where, but I feel like it was somewhere in Asia, but he revealed that in the 90s he met uh, it was before he was president. Um, he met with Bill Clinton and he asked if, if he could join, if not he, if Russia, the yeah. Federation could join NATO. And Bill Clinton basically laughed him off and said no. Yeah. Yeah. So what does that say? Because NATO's point <laughs> was Russia and the Soviet Union, basically. Yeah. Let's do this. We have one more caller, Tarif from New Orleans. What's going on, Tarif? Hey, Tarif. Thank y'all for taking my call. I have two comments. First, I have to say free join the science. First comment is this. They, um, they, they're, they're opening up a corridor for as stall, the people that's trapped in the basement. If they have any citizens there, the Russians are going to be working with the Red Cross and the UN. Of course, the Russians will be in charge. And my last comment is dealing with the um, situation in Western Ukraine. It's rumors circulating that Poland is going to put troops in Western Ukraine. I saw that. I was reading that story. But, but go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, they're talking about um, taking part of on Ukraine for some reunification. And also, if they do that, that's going to just make the uh, abs off the chain, the neo-Nazis banner rights upset. And you never know, they might get in a conflict with them. It is uber bizarre. Tarif, thank you. And I just read the top part. Intelligence obtained by... I'll read it in the next headline. But Tarif, good story. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan, back in a moment. Fault lines. Fault lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And then somewhere in the center, I'm the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. That means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Manila Chan. Right on. Yeah, like I said, we, I saw that story earlier today, but again, I don't know the veracity of the story. And so it's like, you know, 
I've mentioned before, when it, I can't necessarily verify a claim on it. I tend yes. not to go into the story until I can verify it. But basically what Tarif was saying was the way the story was going. And it said something Russian spy boss reveals Polish plans to basically split Ukraine again. No way to know the veracity of that story. And the consequences of that would be astonishing and unpredictable, oh, yeah. to put it mildly. Because that would officially bring NATO into exactly. the war. Exactly. That and literally will how, bring NATO into the war. That is how World War III yes. happens. Yeah. I don't, I don't know the... Yeah. Again, the the gravity of that would be way... The ramifications cannot, require more information to, to nail that we down. We cannot, to be clear, we cannot confirm that that is a fact at this time. Exactly. But that is a a story that is floating around yes. out there in the ether. Yes. And obviously because our friend Tarif found it. He yes. read it somewhere. Yes. Um, but that is yet to be seen because those consequences are so great. Monstrous. Uh, and would be terrible for the world. Yes. I mean, to put it mildly, it, it, that is an understatement. So. Because gu- guaranteed there would be dead Polish soldiers Guaranteed. Yeah. And it, it drags NATO into the war almost immediately under this guise of, okay, we're going to split Ukraine up. So, yeah, I, keep an eye on it, I suppose. Um, but, yeah, that, that would be dramatically bad. And that would be an expl- – and look, from the standpoint of Poland, they seem to be getting – look, this war clearly is not going the way that the West intended it to go. That seems to be obvious. From the standpoint of Ukraine losing it, not being able to hold their grounds, Russia has been basically taking towns and territory and continue to encircle many of the forces that are in Ukraine. Some of the images and pictures that are coming out are showing increasingly older people, seemingly reservists, as opposed to kind of the men who are fighting in these conflicts. The number of people that have been dying have been increasing. And so they are not winning this. And I don't believe for a moment that any of these people believe they're going to win it. So countries like, let's say, Poland, who are maximalists, and all of this, would they get historical over the fact that Ukraine is losing it? Like, it's, it's, it gets into that stuff. I mean, my biggest fear in all of this was that the borders or that these guys will continue to go to the brink of oblivion. Like, in, because none of the stuff that they've been doing have made sense from the standpoint of what is in the best interest of domestic policy, what is in the best interest of your own countries from a geopolitical standpoint, even the U.S. and the dollar and the weaponization of the dollar. It's like, what happens when you steal the various currency from another country. What do those other countries do? And what do those other countries think of when you're willing to do that? It's just, it becomes an issue, it's a problematic issue. Your hegemony of the dollar itself becomes into question when you do stuff like that because other countries want to mitigate the advantage that you have with that dollar. And so, look, I don't know, we'll see. This is one of those things you just pay attention to and just hope desperately it is not by any stretch of the imagination true. Let's get into headlines. In the news, in national news, three people have been killed as a result of the shooting at a hotel in Biloxi, Mississippi, after a man opened fire on Wednesday morning. The shooter, reportedly identified as 32-year-old Jeremy Aslander Reynolds, shot dead three people at Broadway Inn Express after engaging in an altercation over money with a hotel keeper, according to investigators. Following the incident, Reynolds then reportedly fled the scene to golf, um, nearby Gulfport, where he stole a car, attacked another man near Rio Grande Street. After the police arrived, Reynolds barricaded himself in a local grocery store and was found dead when they used tear gas to get inside the building. The United States left more than $7 billion in weapons behind in Afghanistan when American forces left the Southeast Asian nation in the summer 
in the last than last year, a Pentagon report has revealed. According to a congressionally mandated report seen by CNN, the U.S. delivered a total of 18.6 billion, with a B, in military equipment to Afghan national defense and security forces from 2005 to August 2021. Of that sum, equipment worth 7.1 billion remained in Afghanistan following the completion of the U.S. withdrawal in the, from the country on August 30th, 2021, the document reads, adding that the Department of Defense has no plans to return to Afghanistan to, quote, retrieve or destroy, unquote, its military hardware. Seven billion dollars. Think about how much money that is and what that money can do. And just, boom, leave it like it's nothing. Just like it's a worthless thing back in another country. That's astonishing. When we had our guests on yesterday who kept saying, we need to pay attention to the issues in this country and we need to start spending money on the people and the issues in this country. That story, man, it's $7 billion that they basically up in smoke. You might as well burn that money on the White House lawn. They do that. Yeah. <laughs> in a lot of programs. Actually, they, they do. Right. Pretty much. Right. It's not, it's not anything uncommon and that makes it that much worse. In international news, Russian President Vladimir Putin has warned outside forces against interfering in the Ukrainian conflict, promising a lightning speed response to such actions with the use of Moscow's most advanced weaponry. Hence why, if the story that Tarif found is remotely true. Oh, my God. That story right there, that headline. I mean, the ramifications gosh, are chilling, profound, to put Absolutely it mildly. Chilling. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Let's keep going. The world created after the Second World War and the Cold War isn't working anymore. So the West needs a global NATO to pursue geopolitics anew. UK Foreign Secretary Liz Truss argued in a major foreign policy speech on Wednesday. Why does anybody care what a UK foreign policy secretary is? But okay, let's keep going. I'm sorry. Truss also argued that US-led bloc to send more heavy weapons and tanks and airplanes to Ukraine and said China would face the same treatment as Russia if it does not play by the rules. And I love the fact that Ukraine, the sun never sets on the British Empire. And it did set on the British Empire. And yet these kind of, you know, hysterical ramblings of a former empire as if they have some kind of clout in this process. It's amazing. Australia's Home Affairs Minister has accused China of attempting to interfere in an election set for next month, saying a recent security deal with the nearby Pacific nation suggested nefarious motives, nefarious motives. In, a, in comments, a Brisbane radio station on Wednesday, Karen Andrews warns that Australians ought to be, quote, taking notice and paying some attention to, unquote, China's pact with the Solomon Islands announced last week. Because, of course, it's China, so there has to be something nefarious associated with the security pact. Let's keep going. Facebook engineers had no comprehensive knowledge about where and how their users' data could be accessed and had trouble understanding how to control it in line with regional rules. Vice Motherboard Media Outlet has reported. According to a leaked internal document that Motherboard obtained, Facebook's team built, quote, systems with open borders, unquote, and open culture. Now, when Meta faces a tsunami of privacy regulations, it is trouble keeping track of all the personal data at its disposal. Interesting. Like I said earlier, getting data is something that as software engineers, we do. We love it. I mean, because ultimately you never know how the data is going to be used. And so you often find ways to try to get it and hold it, especially for organizations like Twitter and Facebook, because ultimately, if you think about it. Hold it or sell it. Well, a little bit of both. Those are the same. Because like, if you think about it, like, let's say, for example, 
I need to create a model of you as an as a person. And let's say you're on Facebook or some kind of social media company. Well, things that you click on, things that you see, things that you may gravitate towards, I may be able to create a model of you as a customer and sell that. Like the metadata that was revealed by Edward Snowden right. that the government was collecting because of the Patriot Act. And sure, the government's like, oh, we don't know who you are. We don't yeah. know if you're, you know, five foot six, if you're, you know, 100 whatever pounds, you're this age. Not that. Yeah. But they know what time you get up in the morning. They know, you know, based on your phone, yes. what you're looking at. They know what so, you're doing. Your metadata. So they have, they form an idea. Obviously, the ads that are sent to you. So they'll know that you're a woman. Yes. They're, you know, like, like that. Yeah. They know, like, for example, they know if you were looking at hotels in a certain area. Okay, is it a rich hotel? It's a poor hotel. Right. They know if you're um, in a certain location. Okay, is this area rich or poor? Or is she looking at this particular product or that particular product? Meaning they know that stuff. They get an idea of who you are. Exactly. And so if you need to sell information or you need to set up ads in order to advertise to, you have some general idea based on the information you send that person and what they click on versus what they don't in order to set up a model of the person. And so it's like when we're building systems for that stuff, that stuff becomes valuable. It's a big deal. So I'm not entirely shocked that they don't necessarily know how all that information gets accessed just because of the way they probably use it, but they still should know. I mean, there still should be clear systems and ideas on how that information is getting used, manipulated throughout the system. I mean, just building a database. Um, in Earth and Science News, time travel could actually be possible in real life. Physicist Barack Shoshani of Canadian's Brock University has suggested in an article for the conversation. However, there's a twist. First of all, in order to create a time machine, one would need a lot of exotic matter, matter with negative energy. All matter on Earth has positive energy. Is that true? You have anti-protons and anti-electrons. That's secondary. That may be that's something else. Um, all matter on Earth is positive energy, and even though quantum mechanics suggests exotic matter can, in a theory, be created, it would be too small quantities and for too short periods of time. Second, according to Shoshani, time travel could escape the pages of science fiction, but only if parallel timelines existed. This due to the time paradox or consistency paradox. The paradoxes point to the impossibility of time travel, according to Shoshani. Uh, but if time parallel timelines exist, allowing a time traveler to jump into an alternate history, leading to an alternate present, then there would be no paradox. Shoshani argued that this means time travel can be possible if a universe that allows multiple histories to somehow co exist. And again, the reasoning is pretty straightforward that he is using, calling it a paradox. If you go back in time, you kill your grandfather. However, if it was the same timeline, could you have existed to go back in time and kill your grandfather in the first place? However, if you have alternate timelines, then the timeline that you go back into is going to be secondary to the timeline that you originally came from. So if you whack your grandfather, the you in that timeline never gets created. The you from the other timeline that you came from still exists, still ticks along as if nothing has happened to it. Right. So it depends what timeline you want to live on. Exactly. This is the Rick and Morty stuff, like right, where Rick right. is jumping through and then you, you know, it's like, are these people real that you're seeing, even if they're like you, but they're in a different timeline than you? And what does it mean right. for choice? And all, all that stuff becomes very interesting. But let's keep going. Two foreign nonprofit entities with close ties to the Biden administration officials are set to receive a combined $790 million from the president's fiscal year. 2023 budget, according to Washington Examiner. Apparent conflict of interest and questionable financial schemes deserve further scrutiny, insists Wall Street analyst Charles Hotel. Quote, the last thing an administration should do is send large sums, huge sums of foreign nonprofit organizations with whom officials may have personal ties, unquote. Yeah, agreed. 
This day in history, in 1947, the Herendal begins his legendary journey on Contiki. In 1969, Charles de Gaulle resigns as president of France. In 1994, former CIA officer Aldrich Ames admits he forwarded U.S. secrets to the Soviet Union. In 2001, Dennis Tito becomes the first space tourist in history. And in 2004, the first Abu Ghraib Abu torture pictures are published. Those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. So I think I know what's going on in the 1994 one. He's admitting to it in that year. But he might have did it. Prior, yeah, exactly. Prior crimes. Yeah, prior crimes. It's like, okay, yeah, back in those sense. days, I did so and so, etc. It, it, I, I but it maybe I hope he waited until the statute of limitations <laughs> was over. But then I don't know. I think like is there a statute of limitations or something treason, like that? Yeah, treason or espionage or something. I think that's like a forever crime. Yeah. So I don't know. I I actually don't know this name. Yeah, the name isn't familiar to me. So yeah, I, I guess maybe he snuck away with it because. More people would know his name. Yeah, if I know, were right? Like, right? So I. Because initially, know. when I first read the story, I thought this was the Soviet seek the uh, um, nuclear missile seeker. I was like, well, no, that's not the same person. Right. It's not him. So I'm not sure who this person is. But you guys are listening to Fault Lines, Thomas, Chan. Back in a moment with Susan Pye, we're going to have a conversation about Article 42 and whether the Biden Title 42. Title 42, thank you. And whether the Biden administration is going to get rid of it or. Uh, We'll talk to Susan Pye about it. She's an expert on it. Tweak she knows it. her stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's going to get tweaked a little bit, modified a little bit. But you guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find us or, or find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Manila and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. So we're still having this conversation about immigration, and this conversation has been centered around Title 42. And what this basically boils down to is a way for the administration to get rid of a person and prevent them from requesting asylum. You could basically deport without allowing the asylum claim. Now, before Biden came into office and Democrats came into office, they say this is horrendous. This is illegal. This is against the law. This is um, um, uh, um, horrendous from a moral standpoint, an ethical standpoint, et cetera. This is not who we are. This is not our values. And of course, at the point where they get in office and you have all sorts of issues at the border. Well, that becomes somewhat of a secondary question and at the very least a debate within the context of the administration on what to do about this issue, especially considering that a large number of immigrants coming into the country was not something they could deal with when Biden first got into office. And I suspect they don't have an answer for it now. To have a conversation about what's going on around Title 42, we're joined with the one and only one of our favorite people, Susan Pye. She's a nationally recognized speaker, lawyer, and writer. She's a front-page featured Huffington Post writer on immigration issues and has submitted congressional testimony on humanitarian and immigration issues. Susan, thank you for joining us this morning. How are you doing? Hi, I'm fine, Jamal. How are you guys? I, we are doing great, better that you are joining us. And I wanted to get your take on this. You have been 
I was telling um, Manila, I was like, she has opened my eyes on this immigration issue in a way that I don't think anybody has up to this point. I mean, your explanation of what immigrants have to go through and in coming into the country trying to be basically trying to become naturalized citizens of the country was kind of astonishing to me. The idea that you would wait almost a decade and then over the course of that decade, only about less than 10 percent ever gets approved. And so when you think of the mechanics, a person comes into the country, a person may get a job, they may have a family, they may have all of these kind of vestiges that they've created in the society itself. And of those people, only less than 10 percent would ever get the nod of being able to stay. The other 90 percent basically being deported or being illegal in the country. Like, that's astonishing to me that, that, that we have a system like that. And now we bring in Title 47, I'm sorry, Title 42, that basically was trying to prevent people from making asylum claims because of the levels of immigration that we were dealing with and that we could not accommodate. So what is going on currently around this conversation about Title 42? And what is the Biden administration coming to regarding the conclusion on this issue? Well, as you may have heard, three states, including Louisiana and Missouri, filed a lawsuit to uh, stop the Biden administration from terminating what we call Title 42 expulsions. And Title 42 expulsions are uh, a health, public health measure. And so the reasoning behind those expulsions is uh, we don't want, uh, it's because of COVID concerns. So when the migrants present at the southern border, we don't even let them claim asylum before expelling them um, under Title 42 back to their home country. Um, the Biden the the lawsuit has actually been successful to the point of issuing a temporary restraining order against the Biden administration from ending Title uh, 42 expulsions on May 23rd. But the plaintiffs and the defendants, the states and the Biden administration go back to court on May 13th. In the interim, right before the judge issued the temporary restraining order against ending Title 42, uh, the administration did finally come out with like a 20-page memo on um, their plan for the expected surge in migrants at the end of Title 42, which was supposed to be May 23rd. And um, and basically, they're, they're just talking about the same things that they've done before, like surging resources to the border, becoming more efficient, working more closely with NGOs. Um, but in the end, in that memo, they say we are operating within a fundamentally broken immigration system that only Congress can fix. So they're only saying that they can do that they can only do what they can do. Now, the one interesting thing, I think there's a disconnect between the I don't know why they don't have like this. Uh, an expert on immigration, maybe consulting with the court as a neutral witness on um, on this lawsuit, because the judge is saying that he wants to continue to maintain the levels of uh, Title 42 expulsions over what we call expedited removals, which is a deportation from the border. So what that does, and I can explain more of that later, that actually increases the chance of recidivist or repeat um, border crossers, because there's no penalty associated with them trying to illegally enter the country because they're not doing expedited removals. And instead, they're just being expelled with no penalty attached. Very interesting. So I'm curious, was there any talk in the Biden administration itself? I mean, I know Biden was basically saying he's not for it, he's against it and everything else. But behind the scenes, there had to been some talk about whether or not they actually, meaning why is he being so vocal against Title 42? And the reason why I'm asking that is if they doesn't if they don't have 
a legitimate way of dealing with the surge of migrants. And look, the first time around when Biden first got in office, they did not. I mean, Kamala Harris was supposed to be the one in charge of immigration. She griped at it, didn't want to do it. She wanted to be in Europe, et cetera, et cetera. And you had all of these people that were basically coming into the border. Biden didn't want to bring out, um, didn't want people to see what was going on at the border. And eventually, when it came to a head, of course, this was disastrous, to put it mildly. And so it seems that Title 42 has basically allowed the Biden administration a moment of reprieve, even though he complains about it. So is this like, is this one of those things where Biden is pretending to grudgingly go along with this? I'm curious for your take on it. Or is this an ideological choice? He wants to get rid of it. And whatever the consequences of getting rid of it, they're just willing to deal with. How, where, where do you fall on this? Where do you think his head is in regards to the administration and the various people who are around Biden advising him on this? Well, you know, it's interesting because a lot of the people who are around him advising him saying that Title 42 must end, you know, and et cetera, et cetera, have left the administration, the most vociferous advocates of ending Title 42. And so I definitely think that there's a disconnect or there's there's some tension between um you know, what, what the people around him were or are saying and advocating for and what this administration can realistically do and yet still, you know, save the 2022 and 2024 elections. So I think that Biden, the Biden administration will not really fight that hard against the restraining order that the lawsuit has resulted in, in, um, you know, stopping the termination of Title 42. And probably that's what we'll see um, on May 13th. The other thing you can look at is, will the Biden administration come out with a, what we call Administrative Procedures Act rulemaking, which, you know, uh, delineates the end of Title 42, um, which is the proper thing that this judge is saying they should have done. And if they don't, then I think you can see that the administration doesn't really want to fight against what this judge is doing. Yesterday, the DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas testified in front of the House Homeland Security Committee. Uh, He was met with some tough questions, mostly from Republicans, of course. Um, Today, uh, it's probably happening any minute now, the DHS Secretary will address um, the House Judiciary Committee. Now, that is the the very fiery confrontations we usually see because every pretty I think every, pretty much everybody in that committee was some sort of lawyer or litigator. And so they're, you know, they're used to the dog and pony show and firing off tough questions, no matter who's, you know, administration or who's in the White House. What are you expecting to hear from uh, Secretary Mayorkas today? Oh, Mayorkas is going to say the same thing that I said in, in terms of people not wanting so many asylum seekers to present at our southern border or otherwise. Uh, you have to go all the way back to the original law that was passed in the 60s and the international agreements that we signed on to that legally allow people to present at the border and make asylum claims, whether or not the vast majority of them are eventually denied. Um, and so he's going to say exactly what he said in the April 26th memo that they put out, which is that they're operating within a fundamentally broken immigration system and only Congress can fix it. So he's going to shift the blame directly back onto Congress. I'm curious, what would that look like? I mean, when, it, when I brought you in and one of the things that I guess the most shocking aspect of the immigration system has to do with the amount of time that people have to basically wait and not know, like wait in limbo. 
and not know necessarily whether or not they're going to be allowed into the country or not, especially considering they're making their lives in the meantime. What would it take to fix this immigration system? I mean, even within the powers of the Biden administration currently, and I understand that some of this is going to take an act of law, but within the context of, let's say, not an act of law, just within the powers that the Biden administration has, for one, but also from the standpoint of law, what would it take to fix it if you could had a magic wand? So from the, the standpoint of the law, you know, you would actually need to repeal the law that allows people to claim asylum at the border or somehow constrict it. And that would also have to mirror, you know, what we have signed on to as international signatories, like uh, on U.N. Uh, humanitarian law, things like that. So I, I don't see that that is going to happen. Um, and so what the Biden administration can do in the interim is, well, the only thing I can I think that they can do is they can set up like a rocket docket system with uh, courts at the border who are fielded by administrative judges that only do asylum cases, kind of similar to what we saw in decades past with foreclosure courts. And although that had a lot of problems, you know, in, in the rocket docket, um, we would expect that, you know, we might see the same thing in the arguments against due process and things like that if they set up such a system at the border. But right now we have 1.5 million cases backlogged in immigration court, and we only have 500 immigration judges. Oh, gosh. Or to increase the number of asylum officers at the border to 5,000, if an asylum officer rejects your credible fear claim, um, it automatically gets pushed kicked back to the asylum court uh, to the immigration court system. So I think what they're going to have to do is come up with a different court system that's specifically for asylum seekers. One point, I just want to repeat that. <laughs> 1.5 million claims backlog with only 500 judges. Did I hear that right? And and the numbers keep coming. So it keeps mounting. This is Susan's talking about just the backlog. Uh, Susan, can I pick your brain about another area that I feel like a lot of people have forgotten about, and that is of DACA and the Dreamers. Um, That is still out there. The Biden administration really hasn't said too much about it. Do you know what's happening in that world and and the millions, I I suspect, over a million people that have claimed or have filed uh, under the Dreamers Act? Right. It's about 800,000. And, you know, so that's, yes, close to that a million figure. And um, it they remain in the same situation that they remained in under the Obama administration. So they're in the same situation. They're just, uh, they have what we call deferred action, which is like a postponed deportation um, for childhood arrivals. And so there's been no movement on that whatsoever. I know every once in a while, the House will come out and say that, okay, we passed this thing for dreamers, but uh, it doesn't matter what they say, because if they don't have the Senate, then it, it, nothing nothing that they do matters. So it's, it's at this, the same place that it was years past. So it's still totally in limbo. So nothing happened since Obama. Trump didn't do anything. And Biden hasn't taken any action either. Correct. And the people who are vociferously advocating for the end of Title 42 are also the people who are vociferously advocating for DREAMers. But those people, the most vociferous advocates of the Biden administration, have left. That is so interesting. So in one case, you have a system. Man, this is so bizarre because it seems like they're making these kind of it's a broken system and they're making these alterations to a system that's already broken. So in one sense, you have DACA or Dreamers that Obama gave a pass to using executive order. 
if I remember correctly, Donald Trump, correct me if I'm wrong, tried to get rid of it, but he didn't give a reason and rationale for it. Because he didn't give a reason and rationale for it, the court case was basically thrown out. Meaning, even though it's an executive order, you still have to give a reason for your getting rid of or removing that executive order. Trump didn't come up with a legitimate one, apparently, in which case DACA continued. And so now you have Title 47 in one sense and you have DACA in another sense. That's so weird. That's so bizarre to me. Did I articulate that correctly, by the way, um, about what took place during Trump for DACA? Yes, yes. So it all has to do with executive orders and uh, Administrative Procedures Act rulemaking. And that seems to be the the great uh, majority of the controversies that are going on around the immigration. So this stuff is basically being done and held entirely by the president at this point. I mean, whether that's 47 or whether that's DACA, both of these, 42, I'm sorry. I keep saying 47. In my head, for some reason, the seven wants to keep coming up. But whether it's Title 42 or whether it's DACA, both of these things are like basically executive orders. Well, Title 42, remember, was from Walensky making a public health, um, you know, policy with regards to COVID. And DACA is, yes, by executive order. And Trump was, as you said, unsuccessful in challenging it to end it. So, you know, these are all bandages on the great, you know, problem that is foundational, profoundly broken immigration system, you know, that we currently find ourselves in. And, you know, Secretary Mayorkas is right. Fundamentally, this is a, a congressional issue that requires a legislative fix because everything else is just a Band-Aid on the deep wounds, you know, that is immigration. Now, Susan, what about in, the, in recent weeks, and I, I think it's still continuing, in recent weeks, Texas Governor Greg Abbott has been busing uh, the undocumented immigrants that pass through in Texas, shipping them out here to Washington, D.C., and dropping them on Congress's doorstep. Uh, I, I realize that is, you know, for to some degree, just for show. But does he have a leg to stand? Oh, ooh, I shouldn't say that. Ooh, let me take that back. I'm sorry, I forget. Um, does he have have a, a right to, number one, do something like that? And why, meanwhile, brokering deals cross-border with Mexico as it pertains to economic trade. I mean, I don't think as a governor you're allowed to, can you make deals with a foreign government without going through the the rest of the federal government and 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 why is why is mexico going along with it so mexico actually goes along with a lot of things that that this administration and perhaps even what governor abbott requests of them because there's always been this long standing um relationship between lopez obrador and our own government with regards to the migration crisis i mean that's we can have the Remain in Mexico program where people who do claim asylum and are waiting for their asylum cases to come to court have to remain in Mexico until that time, you know, happens. As far as um, uh, Abbott, you know, shipping migrants who've claimed asylum uh, to other states, well, that's not really that much different than what Secretary Mayorkas says he's going to do as part of addressing the surge at the border, which is relieving the pressure points in certain bottlenecks at one point in the border and shipping them to other points at the border for processing so that the pressure is more evenly distributed along the southern border as opposed to bottleneck in, in, one, in one place. And now, NGOs work very closely with, um, with uh, uh, DHS and the government to shelter the migrants. And so, from what I understand, 
the migrants who are being shipped to D.C. are being voluntarily shipped to D.C. and they're either using it as a thoroughfare to where they ultimately want to go or when they're in D.C. They rece- they're receiving shelter and assistance from <clears throat> NGOs. So it's a publicity stunt, but I don't know um, how effective it is. You know, I'm curious about something else. It, yeah, it is a publicity stunt. And, you know, who knows if Abbott is trying to um, feather his own political nest, I suppose. I, I'm curious, of, though, about what's taking place in Ukraine on the notion of immigration. And so some reports came out showing that Afghanis or people who are based, well, Afghans, were, let's, I don't want to say put in the back of the line, but that Ukrainians were given kind of a pass um, in regards to coming into the country and were given a priority of coming into the country. The people who are coming at the southern border, though, that are Ukrainians, where are they origin- where are they coming from? I mean, is this a situation where basically there are people who are living, let's say, in like Mexico or South America that are basically taking advantage of the war, in which case they say, hey, I'm at the border. Let me in. Like, is it that? Or is there some kind of immigration system that's basically taking place where people from Ukraine are showing up at the border, at the southern border? I had a hard time understanding what was going on with that. Could you explain that for me? Yeah. So just recently, the administration began a, a, a program for Ukrainians called United for Ukraine, which gives them a process uh, to enter the United States under humanitarian parole from wherever they are now, whether it's in Ukraine or from like Germany or Poland. Um, however, that was just uh, about a week ago, I believe. Yeah, last month, maybe this past Monday, actually. And um, but before then, the fastest way for Ukrainians to get into the United States was for them to take a commercial flight to Mexico and then present at the border, at which time they were exempted from Title 42. So I believe it's like something like 20,000 of them um, have crossed into the United States through the southern border for that reason. So that's sort of another indicator of how broken the immigration system is, is that where Ukrainians are taking commercial flights to Mexico in order to enter the United States. And until Monday, that was, and probably even now, that's the fastest way for them to enter the United States. So provisions and things like that, is there any kind of, like, I hope that makes sense. When they come into the country, are they coming in under their own steam? Is there some kind of program that basically pays for them to immigrate here? Like, what goes on in regards to the way that is set up in a financial sense? I mean, because... I would imagine people who are coming from Afghanistan are not getting any kind of support or additional help. But correct me if I'm wrong. Um, is there help for immigrants coming into the country like that, especially from um, countries that are getting exemptions? For Afghanistan and for Ukraine, um, refugees from those countries who are entering under what we call humanitarian parole must prove that they have a U.S. citizen financial sponsor who will provide for them for at least a year provide food and housing and uh, whatever their needs are for at least a year. So that's one very strict requirement in both cases for Ukraine and Afghanistan. Okay. So that's basically how, okay. So that's how the process works. It's not a situation where they're coming, they have to pay for themselves anything else. So that means that regardless of where they were from, even if they were in Mexico and decided to come into the country, as long as they had somebody to basically pay for them for the year, it's still fair game. They can be exempt into the country. Exactly. But notably, you know, for asylees or people who, who are other people who are presenting for asylum at the border, like Ecuadorians, El Salvadorians, you know, whatnot, um, they don't have that financial sponsorship requirement. So what is, okay, so what are their requirements? I mean, that's something where they have to have the money themselves for? Yes, but, but when they enter the country as an asylee, uh, they can't work for half a year or a year. And then after that period of time, they can work legally with what we call an employment authorization document. But when they first come into the country, 
they're not allowed to work. So it creates this whole workforce of, you know, uh, illegal workers because obviously they don't have a financial sponsor. All they have is the NGOs and the NGOs are already straining under the current pressure. Uh, so yet I'm sure the majority of them end up having to work just to survive. Gotcha. Gotcha. What, what about all this talk, Susan, of, um, giving the Ukrainian refugees, uh, let, basically letting them cut in line of, of other refugees. And I, I know a lot of um, Afghan, um, I would say, advocate groups are very upset about that because obviously we left that country in a hurry after 20 years and they're, they're and we saw last year, you know, a mass um, migration process. They came over here to uh, Nova, Northern Virginia College to uh, try to sort them out, do the COVID test and all that. But now suddenly there's a halt to that and they are letting the Ukrainian refugees cut in line. What, what kind of process uh, did the government have to go through to let, basically let these people cut in line? They didn't have to go through any process. They just decided that they would exempt Ukrainians from Title 42 Wow. Additionally, they have uh, less um, restrictive uh, requirements for it for applying for humanitarian parole, which is the same thing Afghans are applying under is humanitarian parole. And what we've seen from the Afghan humanitarian parole applicants is that a vast majority of them are being rejected, whereas uh, with the Ukrainians, we're not seeing that. So I don't know if that's because there's an active war in Ukraine and it's more like the the situation that we had in the years past with uh, the former Yugoslav, Yugoslavia um, or Vietnam or Korea. So it's, I think it's during times of active war, uh, they're going to treat those groups of foreign nationals differently than everybody else. Susan, if you had to speculate how this was going to turn out in the next few months, what would it be? I'm just curious. I don't think the Biden administration is going to set forth a rule, you know, to formally end Title 42. I think it will continue to be litigated by other states, not just the states that have currently won their the temporary restraining order with a lawsuit. And so I think it'll just drag on and the Biden administration will be like sort of weekly saying uh, we're, uh, we want to end Title 42, but then not really fighting very hard against the opponents of that. And so it'll continue on, I think, past the midterm elections. And do you think that there will be consequences? One way or the other. I mean, because there are various Democrats, like you said, many of the proponents and the people who are pushing for DACA are completely against Title 42. And so it, I guess my thing is, is there enough pressure in the administration for them to get rid of Title 42? And do those people get the significance electorally of them doing so? Because they don't seem to get the significance of it, nor do they seem to have an answer. Meaning it seems like it's an ideological position without a practical solution for the problem itself once you get rid of the ideological position. Yes, I agree. I think it's only the most vociferous advocates on the left and um, perhaps more left than to the center left um, that are against Title 42 and that want something to happen for dreamers. Um, you know, they're in the same boat, but they don't represent the majority of voters in the middle. So I think as a result, the middle position will be just the status quo, how it is now. Susan, thank you for this. I always enjoy your commentary on this because, like I said, it's one of those issues that often remains in the dark. And, you know, this is something that you cover. It's something that you deal with professionally. 
And so you're able to step through this and kind of elucidate this issue better than I think we've had anybody else come on the show in order to do. So I always appreciate you coming Very on and doing it. Yeah, absolutely. So the voice that you guys were listening to is Susan Pye. She's a nationally recognized speaker, lawyer, and writer. She's a front page featured Huffington Post writer on immigration issues and has submitted congressional testimony on humanitarian immigration issues. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, um, Manila Chan, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And we are at that moment, the wrap, where we're taking your calls. The number is 202-521-1320. That is 202-521-1320. We have Tammy from Bethesda. I assume that's Merlin. Tammy, what's going on? How are you doing this morning? Yes, I was calling regarding to the caller who said earlier, your call said, yeah, the world wants Russia and um, United States get into a battle. The world would be ending, it's going to end in nuclear. You know what? I heard that story when I was, um, was when I was young. And by me being from back from my grandmother, my mom's mom, she's from um, Shreveport, Louisiana. And and we've always believed that. But um yeah, because the way the way if I'm not mistaken, because the more and more I'm reading up on a lot of stuff that either it goes by the Bible. And what has happened was when what's his name? Um Johnson got into the seat. Whatever he, whatever he did, it it all goes back to what is it, nineteen sixty four? Go back a little before that. I mean, I got to be honest. The context of our world is basically set in the First World War. Um, it seems that everything kind of tumbled from that first war. I mean, even from the United States. I mean, we used to be an isolationist nation. And that is over with. I mean, the people today couldn't even conceive of a United States that wasn't trying to, you know, get into this kind of conflict. Yeah, it's astonishing, right? But yeah, we used to be isolationists. I mean, FDR didn't jump into the war immediately. In fact, it was Hitler that declared war on the United States, not the other way around. We were forced. Our hand was forced. Yeah. Yeah. So. So I I do feel you, though, and I appreciate it. I mean, I know that's a point of view um, of things um, among the religious of us. Um, But absolutely appreciate the comment. But we have Malik in D.C. What's going on, my man? How you doing this morning? Hey, how you doing there? Uh, Jamal, you gave, me a, you gave me a good laugh this morning, man, just uh, a little while ago with your, with your introduction. But I won't even go into it, but it, it made me laugh, man. You're, my introduction? What do you mean? What for? Oh, me and coming into the, um, the rap? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, hey, listen, man. I, I, I empathize with you, brother. You know, you're, you're, uh, you are the last man on the wall. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on, my man? What's the topic for today? But uh, I, I just wanted to, uh, you know, kind of chiming in with uh, what happened to Garland recently on Twitter. And, and I, I've been there several times over the past couple of years uh, posting, uh, posting about, 
Fauci and uh, Wuhan and and uh, and also in the in the very beginning, uh, Hunter Hunter Biden's laptop as well. How weird is that, right? Oh, in all of those stories, they were willing to take you off Twitter. They were able to take you off social media. The Hunter Biden one ended up being right. The lab leak found out that Fauci basically lied about that one. Yeah. I mean, like, so it's like in one story after the next, it wasn't even a situation where you were wrong, nor was Garland wrong, by the way. They just took them off. They didn't like what they were saying. Yeah, suppression of truth. Right, it, it, exactly. And, and listen, I, you know, listen, I, I, I've often said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm left of, of a lot of people. Um, and and, and what, in particular, I, I have a question. What would you what would you call a nation that consistently uh, over its uh, modern history consistently supports the most reactionary forces, uh, the the most violent forces, uh, the most reactionary, you know, the, the most reactionary forces all over the world uh, and now is funding a uh, a. It's a Nazi regime. A, a, I'm going too far. A sympathetic, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and, and I, I'm actually at the point where you know I am want to dub our, our, our liberal friends uh, Nazi sympathizers. You know, but what would you call a nation that consistently does this? Put that on me. What do you call a nation that does this constantly? Well, clearly it's called the United States, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, you know, that's clearly part of it. But I don't know what you, I know what you're trying to say or what you're trying to get at. Basically, if this is the rules-based order and the rules-based order is, look, we take action that is in our best interest. If we're going to use human rights as a club, we use human rights as a club. We're not going to go after our adversary or our allies on stuff. So Saudi Arabia can have all of these mass executions. They can still have head chopping or, for that matter, crucifixions. We're not going to bring that up as an issue. We cherry pick everything of when when to admonish and when to ignore. Yes. And Saudi is one of them. What it boils down to is all the money. And in this in this case, it's Saudi Arabia's black gold. Right. It's all about the oil. Ukraine. It's all about, I would say, location. Laundering the money. Yeah. And that. (laughs) Right. And that. Basically putting a bunch of money into a bunch of weapons. Because let's be clear. That's not, it's not a situation where, okay, here's $20 billion, Ukraine. It's more so, okay, we're going to give you a billion dollars to buy weapons. Well, who are those weapons coming from? They're coming from our own manufacturers. They're buying our weapons. Yeah. It's just laundering money back to our weapons manufacturers. Malik, thank you, my man. I appreciate that. Adam, Virginia, my hometown. What's going on, Adam? Hey, good morning. Thanks for taking my call. I'd love to expand on what the previous caller was talking about. It is a religious aspect to this anti-communist fervor. And, and in this uh, this version, you know, the 2.0, 2.1, whatever you want to call that, is, um, and yes, much earlier than 1964. I agree with you, Jamal. I would, I would say even earlier than the 1940s, because not only did we send military in under, uh, let's see, President Wilson, Woodrow Wilson sent troops to fight with uh, the white Russians against the red Russians. Right. A lot of people don't know that. The first mouthpiece. Yeah. And the first real uh, like state level mouthpiece of the uh, fire and brimstone anti-communism, I suspect, was John Foster Dulles. Interesting. Called the Brothers, which is about the Dulles Brothers. And, 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 and yep. Yeah. I'll stop there. No, that's really interesting. What? 
you by I know too much. Right. One of them, exactly. One of one of them, the Dulles brothers, one was obviously the famed CIA boss. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other, I forget what branch of the government he worked in. This was Alan Dulles, the CIA boss, right? Am I remembering that name correctly? And, yeah, Alan Dulles was the, the uh, head of the first CIA. And the other brother, I forget what branch of the government. He was Secretary of State. That's it. I, that's it. That's, that's the it. name. That's it. Both of them under Eisenhower. Wow. Right, so it was a long time coming, and it, they were, you know, this was all under the, the guise of the Red Scare and all the commies, the Soviet commies, and then it was, you know, by the time you got to the Eisenhower Doctrine in Asia, the Domino Doctrine, it, it went from Eisenhower to Kennedy to Johnson to Nixon. So it was all back then in the, in the 50s and 60s, and, and like you said, probably before, um, but it was all under this guise of we're going to, we're going to stamp out communism. But really, it was to contain the other two world powers because they knew that Russia historically was a dominant world force and they knew that China could be one. And now here we are. It's funny. We used to have enough sense to keep those countries out of alignment with one another. And it seems that... But they pushed them together. Yeah, it's so weird. It seems like... It, well, yeah, I mean, it, I know for myself, it's like... Sometimes you may think that you've been so successful that it is just almost cosmic, like that it's not practical reality of I'm taking this action, I'm taking this choice, I'm putting this intention behind it, I'm putting this work behind it, that it feels almost like we've had so much success, it's just a cosmic thing. So we don't have to use this kind of geopolitical policy, and instead of just policy, well, we could just tell people. We could just try to force them and browbeat them to do X or Y. And that wasn't the way we did politics before. And yeah, I agree with you. I mean, even going back to Kennedy, people love Kennedy. And yet Kennedy would browbeat um, Eisenhower. Oh, the missile gap, the missile gap. You've allowed the Russians to, or the Soviets to have this many more missiles and everything else. It was nonsense. They knew it wasn't true. But he was still using it as a way of going after his own political opposition. Yeah, the, the secret war was fully launched in, in Laos and Cambodia yes. under JFK. Yes. And think about that for the moment. I mean— they called the Cold War, and they were like, oh, there was a Cold War, and it wasn't violent. Yeah, it wasn't violent in U.S. Here, if you're looking it wasn't at those, violent yeah, here. here. Millions of, of ladies that look like me, little kids that look like me, were killed with Agent Orange and napalm and munitions. Yeah. Millions. With glasses. That's right. With, yes. With, Masses of people with glasses. With these glasses. Oh, you mean racial. Oh, see, I don't see racial yes, persuasion. I'm talking about Asian yeah. people. We're talking about <laughs> Southeast Asia, Jamaral. Stay with me. Well, here. you're on the radio. People may not. Stay with me here. Because right. no. Manila Chan doesn't give it away. No, that doesn't give it away at all. At right. All. <laughs> but no, I mean, even stuff like Operation Gladio, like putting um, like troops and whatnot, or let's say people in order to create all sorts of havoc and chaos in those countries um, in Europe after. Um, leaving during the war and stuff like that. Yeah, this was a mess. I mean, just good, a good call from Adam. Yeah, absolutely good call for Adam. Thank you, Adam. I appreciate that. The number is 202-521-1320. That is 202-521-1320. A really good show today. You know, you know what's funny? I, I learned this number quicker. And I mean, it's been a little over a week that I've been here, right? Yeah. I've learned that number quicker than... I might even remember my own number or my husband's number. Really? Well, because you're— You say it all the time, over and over and over and over again. Because everything is saved on your phone, like your external memory, right? So I I have to really think about it when I'm thinking, can I dial my husband's phone number off memory? Yeah. And I have to think. But this one, it's like, 
it's you say it so often from yeah. saying it, you're like, okay, it just sticks, right? So here's another one. Um, this is from the Hill. Dismal polls have Democrats split over how hard to push Biden's agenda. Now, when you think about that, and it's like they don't know whether or not they should push their president's agenda. He's the top of the ticket. Things have gone so monstrously wrong. I mean, and if you don't push the president's agenda, what agenda do you push? Like how, meaning, what do you go out there and tell the public in order to get the public to vote for you? If you're not going to go out there and say, if you put us back in office, we're going to get Biden's. Oh, right. Yeah. What are you going to tell them? Don't you have to tell them something? Don't you have to run on something? No. Nothing at all? No, we're not. We're not in that phase of civil society anymore. There is. Then what is there? I mean, like. No, there's nothing. So they just, they just the walk out there. Look, I'm a Democrat. You yeah, want to keep Republicans out of office. Correct. That's it. Screw Trump. We don't like him. Vote for me. That's my platform. What That's if Trump doesn't run? That's literally all it takes now. What if Trump doesn't run? Then, I, I don't know. See, <laughs> but it doesn't matter. Then they're just, the new boogeyman is the, the guy with the R. Or, or the gal with the R behind their name. So basically, Hillary Clinton 2024. Just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what horrible deeds you've done in your past career, you know, as a career bureaucrat and politician. Yeah. It doesn't matter. You don't Cuomo have 2024? To have, you don't have to have a platform. Cuomo 2024? Ugh. Just, I'm ugh to a lot of... <laughs> ugh. Honestly, we were talking about this. I really do think Clinton will come back. You really think that? I really think that. Because if you think about it, they keep saying it's her turn. All of these Democrats, from their standpoint and their framing of the world, oh, she was cheated by the Russians. Uh, well, it, it would stick it to Vladimir Putin if Clinton came back and was, you Poke know, him in the eye. It would just poke him in the eye if Clinton could win the presidency. I mean, this is the way they think, and they frame this stuff. In their heads, the Trump-Russia stuff wasn't a psyop. That stuff was real. I mean, there's all—if you ever have the chance or the— <laughs> Um, dis, the, the unluxury, the, there's a different word for it, but that's the word that came <laughs> to mind. The unluxury, I'll go with it, of meeting any of these people. They are insane. They are insane. They're narcissists. Oh, we got, we got one more caller to squeeze in. Oh, our friend, I believe it's our friend David in South Carolina. Hi, David. Hey, good morning. Good morning. How are y'all? Good morning. Better that you're with us, David. How are you doing this morning? Exceptionally good show this morning, like you were saying. Um, I don't know what it was, but it was really good. Thanks, man. Um, obviously with y'all, but I wanted to touch on the just lack of historical knowledge that uh, most people in the United States definitely in the West are. For example, Laos is the most bombed country in history. And like you were saying yesterday, and that was a great caller. Um, I forgot his name. James Bradley. He was, yes, him. He was great. Y'all should definitely try to get him as a regular if you don't you know that he was great but yeah i mean there's i remember there was an article a couple of years ago that came out that the u.s dropped around 160 million tons it was every eight minutes for 24 hours for eight and a half almost nine years exactly that b-52s and c-130s carrying whole plane loads of munitions every eight minutes there were drops in laos i have two family members nuclear family members who were killed in those drops. So never forget. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's just astonishing. It's, it, it's astonishing, seriously. Yeah, wow. We don't David. know history. I just now thinking about it. Um, it. I mean, it's just horrible, but uh, y'all have a great rest of your day. Sorry for ending that all on a bad note. But, but love that you know history, David. Thank you. Absolutely love that you know it. And that is a good note. I'll take that as a good note. I'll take that. There's hope out there that people might actually bother to learn history and be like David. 
be South like Carolina. David. South Carolina. But guys, I want to thank all of you. I want to thank our producer. I want to thank our engineer. I want to thank my co-host, Manila Chan. My name is Jamal Thomas. I want to thank all of you and the callers. Always the great. And the rumblers. That's right. Smash that rumble button before you leave. But you guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Manila Chan, you guys have a phenomenally good day. We'll see you in the morning. Adios. Fault Lines.